Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this latest version of uh, Tales, Tales from Outer Space, where I take an HFY story from somewhere around the internet and read it aloud for your enjoyment. All the relevant links are down below. Like, subscribe, and all that YouTube comf to help this video and channel grow. Anyways, as always, I hope that you enjoy. Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this latest version of uh, Tales, Tales from Outer Space, where I take an HFY story from somewhere around the internet and read it aloud for your enjoyment. All the relevant links are down below. Like, subscribe, and all that YouTube comf to help this video and channel grow. Anyways, as always, I hope that you enjoy. First Contact Prologue Number 1 Pathok Eats an Ice Cream Cone Pathok carefully unwrapped himself with the clutching confines of his ceramic drop shell, moving his limbs carefully so as to not crack the shell or damage any of the precious equipment that might have survived a perilous drop into the heart of the enemy's homeworld. He would need the maps, the recorders, the confederate cash decks that had been collected from dead Terrans off the battlefield. He would need the counterfeit equipment of the Manti tourist, and some of the special equipment hidden in the harness that he would need to wear would allow him to emulate the Manti to any and all senses, that with notable exception of the Terran biological optics. The yellow sun high up in the strangely blue sky warmed Perthok's carapace, making him feel more awake, more active, and he would normally have felt in the 18-month cold drift into the enemy homeworld of the Terrasol Confederacy, the homeworld of the only intelligent Mamidian predator in the known universe. With their warlike ways and innovativeness at despising war materials, the fearsomeness on the field of battle, Perthok was slightly surprised that he had even was alive. Not burned down by an extensive planetary and air defense systems the Terrans possessed. He was not drowned in one of those scattered oceans, and not killed by a fast-moving piece of space dust puncturing his pod. Nor did his grav repulsors malfunction and smear him across the fractured pieces of the proto-continents. Looking carefully around, his vision enhanced by his combat visor, Perthok saw why he had not been shot down or incinerated by one of those massive weapons and placements that the Hive Intelligence believed covered the entire surface of Terrasol. He was at the edge of one of the huge facilities Terran seemed to be obsessed with creating. A massive bulk of weapons, and with the huge hulking shapes of Terran warships were everywhere with the magnetic north of Perthok. East and west were strips of light forest, nice for aesthetic reasons and producing oxygen. If you breathed it, Perthok enjoyed the sweet smell of nitrogen that permeated the atmosphere in the undreamed of quantities. No wonder the Terran mammals fought so hard to protect their homeworld. The very air nourished normal intelligent life. Perthok wondered at the sweet atmosphere, reaching into the pod and pressing an automatic sequence. With a hiss, the pod shivered and collapsed into dust that stirred the sweet smelling breeze from the huge metropolis of the south of Pithok's landing site. Pithok activated his recorders and began moving south, towards the large city that Trianad mothers had named Ninth Swarming Place of Furless Mammals, and the Terrans called uh, New Angeles. By the time the warm yellow sun had crested the zenith and began moving towards the horizon, Pithok had been picked up by a well-meaning, nearly polite Terran and given a ride back to the fearsomely fast two-wheeled transport that roared and shivered and moved like some kind of reptile and out-of-ground-effect vehicle traffic. 
The talkative Memel had mistaken him for one of the treacherous Manti, one of the Memel's allies, who had missing something called a uh, bus. But the Memel gave him a ride all the way to the center of the huge metropolis, dropping him off at the center of the market to do some uh, sightseeing. The two words meant the same to Perthok, and he wondered exactly what kind of vision visioning could have had the tourist of Terrasol as he wandered at the spacious streets of the city. Looking around, Perthok felt his mind reel as he looked up at the huge buildings, some of them taller than the hive Perthok had grown from a larvae. Terrans were everywhere, moving about rapidly and grunting at one another in the Terran standard. To Perthok, the language sounded just as brutal as the Terrans themselves. The ground vibrated underneath the city, and Perthok barely kept his cool, nearly screaming aloud as the very ground shook beneath his feet. Some of the beings around him stared, and Perthok heard a more than one instance of a brutish sound Perthok knew served the Terran laughter. He could not believe it. The Terrans took no notice of the planet's instability. That would enable them to live on a more planetary bodies than anyone had ever thought. That knowledge alone would guarantee the Hive Mothers would be pleased with Perthok's performance. No wonder the mammals fought like the insane. They came from a planet that was just as unstable as they were. He took the pictures carefully, making sure that no being could see his actions as he recorded both the buildings and the masses of beings that hurried about their business. He carefully took to record the mammals entering buildings in great detail. In one instance, Fuzok carefully recorded every available site of a place that turned away from any of those not Terran military. He wondered what the facility named Harv's Bar and Gruel could possibly be. Weapons research, strategy planning, cybernetics, power armor manufacturing, rattering and the vestigial wings in agitation, Perthok reluctantly moved away from the tempting building, whose optic-catching hollows seemed to almost try and lure him inside. His sensitive audio receptors, boosted by his head covering, could detect the barking sound of terror and laughter, the sound of glass on glass, glass on plastic, and plastic on plastic, and both glass on plastic and metal, Whatever activity was happening inside was plainly quite exciting to the Terrans inside, but the two huge, hulking Terrans outside on either side of the door were intimidating Perthok to the point that he would not even try and peer inside the brightly lit window. By nearly sunset, Perthok was beginning to become nervous as he wandered the streets of the gigantic habitation complex. All around him, beings were moving about, and on some corners, beings nervously hocked wares the reluctant appearing beings. More than once a male or female Terran would approach another Terran, and they would leave together to enter a building. While he often saw the same being who waited to be approached, he rarely saw the one who'd done the approaching. Some beings were beginning to stare, and Perthok became sure that it was sooner or later, some being would recognize that he was a Triniad instead of a Manti and the military would be called in to take him to custody. He knew that if the Terrans took him prisoner, he would be cooked over a hot liquid vapor, cracked open and eaten with sauce. Every Trainaad knew that that was what Terrans did with Katrainaad. But Potek had seen Terrans dismember, deshell and devour reddish exoskeleton-clad creatures whose four digits ended in claws. To Pithok's horror, he had seen more than one feeding establishment with lifeforms caged in transparent cells filled with salinated water to be picked out by one by the Terrans and then, after a suitable wait, devoured. 
Pothox shivered and tried to think of a way to avoid notice as possible devouring. Quickly looking around, Pothox saw there was quite a few beings purchasing the wares and the stand marked a ice cream in the Terran standard, and he took note of the fact that no being seemed to take notice of any being that devoured the ware. He recorded the stand, including the spectrographed analysis, electromagnetic scan, and full visual. He worked up his courage and approached, his senses picking up a rich mixture of complex protein chemicals emanating from the cart. Curious, Pathok stood in line and eventually reached the front of the line, drawing closer and closer to the source of the wonderful airborne sense. Once on the squat, bulky mammals was offering a semi-solid topping worth wrapped with bread-like wafer substance. His hairless face was contorted into what Hive Home Intelligence had briefed Pathok was the equivalent of a smile. To Pathok, it looked like a gesture intention of imminent devouring, with the bared meat tearing teeth of one of the galaxy's few intelligent predators. Pathok had seemed at the expression all day, however, and was past the initial flinching stage that he had been when he first confronted the grimacing mammal. Ice cream, gentle being. I have chocolate, raspberry, strawberry, mint chocolate chip, or vanilla left. The old man told Pathok, speaking in rapid galactic standard, heavily accented with the brutish Terran tones. Strawberry, Pathok half-mused, holding out a Terran credit chip. The man scanned the chip, nodded, and then scooped out a chunk of pinkish, frosted material and deposited it on the open end of the conical wrap wafer. The Terran handed Pathok the credit chip and the cone, and waved Pathok on. The insect warrior moved on, gently testing the cold substance with antennae and equipment, searching to make sure that it was not some type of poison, a mild organic corrosive for cleaning teeth, or a cruel Terran joke that would suddenly eviscerate him in broad daylight in the middle of the street. Complex carbohydrates, frozen H2O, sweetened wafer, no synthetics. It was safe for consumption, and Pathok sliced a piece off with his mandible, drawing it rapidly, melting piece into his maw. Melted nicely, and the taste reminded Pathok of fruit, his favorite dish. The cone was not that bad either, kind of a tuber taste to it. Almost eagerly, he took one more bite to see if it was good the second time as he ingested the strange substance. The taste seemed to explode in Pathok's brain, and he found himself steadily devouring the strange creation. Some beings looked at him and turned away, smiling the normally terrifying Terran smile. Pathok could not care less what the other beings did, as long as he had some of this wonderful substance to consume. Here was a creation worth going to war with the Terrans all over again. A secret showed just how much treacherous the mammals were in not sharing it with the all-powerful Trainerad Hivewolds. Did the stupid little mammals not know that the Trainerad were gods? Then Pathok was the most powerful of them all. He found himself dancing quickly, ignoring the passerbys, and stopped suddenly, a realization drawing on him. He was invisible. Nobody paid any attention to him. He was invincible. That's why no one dared confront him. Pathak looked around slyly, with the last realization searching for a female Trinad, or even a Manti. After all, he was sexy. No female would be able to resist him. Even the Terran females were glancing at him slyly, and for a long moment, Pathak was tempted in trying to cross species sexual encounter but changed his mind at the sight of a pair of powerful arms and thick, killing digits. 
The lights of the city were bright, and it seemed to emit sound of their own, turning the city into a sparkling orchestra of sounds that Pathok would never imagined in his life. All of the beings that he met were friendly towards him, trying to cull favor with the powerful and wise Pathok, and even the Terrans seemed acceptable, now that he no longer had fear of them, since he was invisible, omnipotent, and uh, irresistible. All too soon, though, Pathok began worrying that he had forgotten something. He had revealed himself to some being that he should not have, had he dropped a piece of equipment that had given him away as a trainer had the offending large Terran cyborg waiting at the corner of the military corridor in his large getting hand, had he forgotten the correct steps for the, the recreational mating dance? Dejectedly, he began searching for a place to spend the night, but the huge, friendly city now seemed to disdain him until he moved into a small, cluttered side street and huddled up next to a large, muddy container that was cold and surrounded by a slimy refuge. His liquid H2O began falling from the sky. He curled up into a ball, miserable with the thought that he might have forgotten something that his hive mothers wanted, and lamenting the fact that no females found his pheromones attractive. Sleep came slowly and fitfully, and he dreamed of Terran military cyborgs that he had seen on the streets chasing him through the tunnels of his hive home. When Pathok woke, he discovered some lousy mammal had stolen his foot coverings and rations. Not only was he wet and cold, but he no longer had food that was safe to consume, and his delicate feet would be subject to whatever horrors the Terrans could devise. Fortunately, he still had his most of his equipment and the cred sticks hidden away. He rubbed his vestigial wings together and decided the only recourse was to purchase some ice cream had to eat, or to starve. The passerby, from the most part, ignored Pathok as the next several days. He spent all of his money on the delectable substance known as ice cream, trying as many different types as possible. He could not believe that the Terrans had devised so many distinct flavors. What geniuses! Surely the hive mothers would relent and grant the mammals honored being status in the hive if they would just share the wonderful recipe for the delightful concoction with the trainer ad. Soon, Pathok began selling some of his non-essential equipment to a man on the corner by a house with a friendly Terran woman who had lots of visitors at night. Soon, the man began training the wonderful substance to simply record Pathok speaking about a life in the hive. While two huge Terrans, nearly entirely mechanical, were so heavily augmented with cybernetics, guarded Pathok from the shadowy foes that sought to bring him down. Despite Pathok's nervousness about the two fearsome combat cyborgs, the friendly man assured Pathok that they were deserters from the Terran military and that believed the Terrans and Trianad would work together. Pathok could not believe that a simple street vendor sold something that would make a warrior cast of the Trianad appear harmless to the surrounding Terrans and tourists, nearly as good as the legends of invisibility. And here was a fool who gave the substance for answers even a larvae would know. What fools these Terrans were? No, our fools, they were knew who he was, and they would come and get him soon. The two bodyguards were in fact Terran military, who were measuring Pathok for a steaming pot and determining what kind of sauce that he would taste good coated in and dipped with. 
Almost clacking with anxiety, Perthok hurried to the nearest spaceport, keeping the whole box of ice cream close at hand the whole way, and boarded her flight to the disputed zone. There, he ordered his freezer stock full of as many different types of ice cream as he could order. He really wanted to avoid leaving his room. After all, they were out there, waiting for him to keep him from breeding with fertile women. The whole way led to the disputed zone, nobody even suspected that the trainer-eyed warrior who ate nothing but ice cream and rubbed its legs together with glee one moment and whose antennae trembled with fear that they had almost caught him. No, one knew that instead of a harmless mantee, peacefully ally of the Terrans, a trainer-eyed warrior, they feared infiltrator to the very cradle of Terrans itself was amongst them. Had not the trainer ad defeated the Terran military in 22% of all engagements, had Pathok himself done something no other had ever done, visited the Terran homeworld and survived, wasn't the man by a large artificial pond of liquid HDO one of the men who had asked him his harmless questions? What exactly was Rocky Road? There was not any chunks of stone, nor was it on any roads. The disputed planet of Tukatak. Decorous was easy to reach, and easier to move from the Terran-occupied areas to a small section of the proto-containment that the Trayanad used to still occupy. Before Pathok left the Terran-occupied zone, he stole a large armored ice cream transport vehicle that had specifically outfitted to the transport of the wonderful material. The camouflage bolted to the vehicle, and the bobbing head of the large Terran with the bright red nose and strangely multicolored hair ensured that no one of the Terrans would try and stop Thok as he raced out of the Terran-occupied zone. The severed head atop the vehicle cackled in a harsh Terran laughter the entire way, striking fear into everyone. But strangely enough, attracting Terran larvae, who tried to flag Thok down with grid sticks. Each crowd of Terran larvae made Perthok titter in terror and reach into the back of his armored transport for another ice cream bar. He was deathly afraid of the small, voracious creatures that would manage to stop his armored vehicle and devour him in a larval feeding frenzy. The vicious little larvae were in such a feeding frenzy that they chased him on for a large, crushing feat for long distances, their hunting cries loud as they pursued him. He was keening in relief when he finally reached the Trainerard occupied zone, pursued by dozens of Terran assault craft who seemed desperate to regain the armored transport's valuable cargo intact, and because of that, could not bring their heavy weaponry to bear. Despite that, the ferocity of the Terran assault troops forced what small remaining forces of the Trainerard had to offer off planet within hours, and Pathak was invaluable cargo had made it. And once the superiors had sampled the contents of the armored cargo vehicle, they agreed that the loss of a minor planet was nothing compared to the importance of Perthok's discovery. While sampling the prize that Perthok returned with, clutch leaders decided that they would use their secret weapon and the invisibility that it bestowed upon them on the hotly contested world of Chitabix, where the Terrans had recently inserted a full clutch of Terran heavy assault marines. Perthok's supervisors viewed what tapes Perthok had not sold off and agreed with ice cream in their possession. The mighty Terrans would suffer the fate of any other primate that dared resist the trainer Ard. Defeat, death, and devouring. 
Pathok and the other warriors gathered together and dodged the Terran lines. Their weapons were slung as they moved slowly forward through the line, each of them being handed an ice cream cone by the clutch leader. All present were trembling in anticipation of the substance that would turn them into the universe's lowest life form, not fit to even gaze upon the stars, much less travel them to the greatest thing in the universe had ever created, the summer of all that was good, wise, clever, sexy, and powerful. They had seen what happened to the Terran Marine Station nearby as the trainer and sympathizers stalled each ice cream shipment as it came through, snagging it right before the Terran naval transports when they touched down. Leaving boxes full of dirt in the place of the crated refrigeration units the ice cream was shipped in. As the ice cream was stolen, the trainer had watched the Terrans closely and see if it had effect on the Terran warriors. More and more fighting amongst brothers and lack of equipment maintenance, lackluster patrols, a complete falling apart of discipline in a force veered galaxy-wide for their discipline and ferocity. The Terrans went from almost machine-like to a clutch of Rawai without a hive mind touch for guidance. Pathok's supervisors were pleased with Pathok's discovery of the secrecy to the Terrans' ferocity and ability to become nearly invisible anywhere not to mention the ability to breed like some kind of scavengers infesting a giant corpse. They had planned a lengthy conference partaking in the wondrous substance Pathok had discovered, and finally setting on the morning's operations during the long trip, having gotten lost several times, they had devoured the cargo of the armored transport, and so had to choose a random world to test their power of ice cream on. Wisely, the clutch lord pointed at a map of membranes of resize, and stated that the world would be the first to fall. Each of Trenad's left in bunker complexes that had been their home, scuttling forward on powerful legs, holding ice cream cones over the head to grant them invisibility and fearsome combat discipline and skill. Many of the cones were half-eaten, and more than one warrior held an empty hand into the air, snickering to himself with the cleverness of deceiving his superiors into thinking that he had eaten his issued cone. They drew closer and closer to the Terran lines, not a single shot being fired at them. They could feel the surge of victory as they drew closer and closer, soon able to see the Terran marines staring at them in fear and confusion, Elation filled their hearts as they drew ever closer, coming closer than anyone had ever had without being discovered and fired on by the fearsome mammals. Some of the Terrans were bent over, convulsing in terror, leaving the eyeframes spasming so that they uttered sharp barking of fear and chagrin. Open fire! One of the Terrans bellowed, and the fearsome firepower of the Terran marines tore the attacking insect warriors apart. Some of them managed to stagger within spitting distance of the Terrans, but none of them ever fired a rifle. One warrior stopping between the two marines to dance and preen at them, displaying his invisibility and cleverness. Perthok watched the minds of his comrades from behind the boulder where he had stopped to eat his cone, and any cones within reach, and felt sad. But, uh, oh well, more would be hatched to replace them. Pathok figured that he would go back and tell the Hive Intelligence what happened. As soon as he finished his ice cream cone, and maybe with a bucket of ice cream in the bunker. End of Part 1 First Contact Prologue Part 2 
Born Whole Veneer One was born whole. When he formed with his mind full, Veneer One stepped out into the sunlight of the garden's observation deck, looking around with wide eyes. He was in a duroglass cylinder overlooking an eight long hydrocultural bays and a duroglass hidden beneath the layers of dust. Surrounded, the structure Veneer One had been born in was nothing but desert with strange streamers of light off in the distance, making the horizon look strange to Veneer One's eyes. Workday will begin in 15 minutes, a soft voice said into the air. Thank you, Veneer One said. Debris must be cleared from the hydroponics and greenhouse duroglass surface, the voice said. Veneer One nodded, knowing how he would have to complete the such an action, not that he had ever been taught. He had been born knowing his tasks and his duties. Veneer One looked at the duroglass. The glass itself was held through the storm, but the supporting structure had warped, allowing the strange energies from the desert beyond to affect the plant life he had spent full rotations around the sun maintaining. The air was thicker now, and he could feel the warmth through the glass. It pleased him. Sighing, Veneer One checked his knowledge within his mind, then, cross-breeding, strengthening, and plant via selection, he could use faster and more reliable methods than cross-breeding, but those methods were methods of a last resort. He looked again at the air gap. The servants had given out rotations ago. He would have to solve this this way. Fungus it was. Veneer one stood outside. The strange, deadly energies had subsided somewhat, but he was not here to measure them. Instead, he knelt down and examined the fungus. It had spread, driving roots into the sand, feeding off the sunshine as well as the deadly energies. It was good. The crack had gotten wider, wide enough for Veneer One could slip a finger into it. The grass seed he'd encouraged through the gap had taken hold, battling the fungus, and had begun to sprout in a fan way of the cracks. Veneer One was tired. He had been born whole. He had cared for the plant home and the plants within. Veneer One lay down on the soft bed of fungi, moss and basic grass. He sighed and closed his eyes. Veneer Two was born whole. He knew all there was to know. He knew his place in the world, knew magic words to change plants, knew the plant home was his home. Over the decades, he ensured that the lichens and base grasses expanded from plant home, Closer to plant home, where the sand had been defeated and turned into loam, Veneer too had planted seeds of tough but attractive bushes and plants. Eventually, Veneer too lay down in the bed of moss, where his ancestor Veneer I had lain when his biological functions had ceased. Veneer too was content as he closed his eyes. The next would carry on his work. Veneer III was born whole. He knew the secret of nature, of plant and water. He knew magic words to modify life. He stood on the deck of Crystal Observation Deck, observing how the green had spread out. Plant home was old. The duroglass was discolored in places. The metal had gone old and brittle. It was time to use magic to pull water from deep beneath the sand that had become soil. The moss and fungi which stripped the poisons out, and those poisons that the lichens and moss did not filter, Veneer Three had plans for. Veneer Three went outside and began to sing songs of fashion and magic that let him reach down into the rock and bring forth the water. Once they started flowing, he lay down on the soft moss and went to sleep. His work was done. 
The year 12 was born whole. He knew the secrets of nature, of plant and water, of wind and rain, of magic and will. His pointed ears and wide sensitive eyes were reflected in the small creatures in front of him, who was yawning at the petals the flowers peeled back. The tiny creature was female, and it was her job to pollinate flowers, a perfect recreation of Veneer Eleven, who had used magic to create them. It had been Veneer Twelve's pleasure and duty to oversee her birth and the birth of her sisters. She yawned and responded to his singing and flew into his hand. She preened as she moved through the greenhouse of Plantome. Happy with the success, Veneer Twelve went outside the crystal walls of Plantome and opened his hand, letting her sense the world around her. She was a queen. She had been born whole. She would fly through the air, now sweet to the taste no longer choking on those that tried to breathe it. Veneer Twelve laid down on the moss and closed his eyes. It had taken dozens of decades for his work to be done, and now that was it. He could rest. Veneer 38 had been born whole. He knew secrets, magic, and how to alter life itself. Unlike the others, he knew what he was. He was a wood elf. He knew this because he knew, because he had been born whole. It had rained the day before without the acids that turned the plants to soup and soaked into the ground. The acids had been slowly dropping its strength, which meant that Veneer could start singing plants that were more fragile and more gentle. He had been born whole, and this time he was nearly done. He sang to these fairies, who sang back and preened. He lay down and slept. Veneer, 68, had been born whole. He knew of magic and plants and the secret songs of the Fae. He had traveled from the plant home four days of walking. The Fae had danced and sang to him that they had seen something beyond the green lands, where the sickness sand spread out from the good healthy green. He pushed aside flowers and walked down grass, pleased at how far the green plants had grown. Four days walked. For the first time he saw another wood elf, another of his kind. I am Veneer 68, he said. I am Damti 95, the other said. I greet you. Am I the first you have met? Veneer asked. Damti nodded. Shall we exchange secrets, songs, and spells? Veneer smiled. Of course. Together they sang, telling one another their secrets. Shall we merge our gardens? Damti asked. Yes, Veneer answered. Veneer walked back, feeling tired. He lay down on the moss, and the fairy sang to him. It had been good. Veneer 129 was born whole. He knew the secrets of plants, the magic songs, and the dances of the Fae. Plantome was dying. Smells were fading. Songs were no longer answered. He had used the last of his magic to bring a being of little ones, covered in fur, covered in scales, covered in hide, flying ones, swimming ones, walking ones. He had cast the last spells on the magic was dying as Plantome died. But Veneer 129 was content. The sky was blue. The stars no longer stripped the plants of their life. The sun no longer seared. The water no longer poisoned. And the air no longer choked. As Plantome died, Veneer 129 smiled. He was a wood elf, a keeper of plants, a singer of songs. His work had made the days warm, the nights cool, the water pure, and the air sweet and the land covered in plants. He laid and went to sleep.
smiling. Confederate survey vessel puddle jump. Report on Maveline 228. Terraforming complete. Environmental stable. Woodolf class terraforming system has shut down in accordance with two projections. Estimated time from beginning to full terraforming 238.5 Solarian years. Looks like the project is a success. Nothing else follows. End of chapter. First contact, part one. Captain, I've got an anomaly on my scanners. Scantech third frost Kamvar said, breaking the quiet of the bridge. The entire crew, numbering forty in all, turned to look at the youthful Encar as if it had suddenly gone mad. Out here, between star systems, this is far from the outer rim civilizations. Captain Holkath asked, blinking his rearmost eyes. What is it? The tech checked the scanner again. Um, it looks like some kind of beacon in real space that is transmitting to, to jump space. Bridge executor first class Ledmar lifted his crest to calm the bridge crew, moving forward and bending over the scanner to look at it and his two foremost eyes, which in ancient times had been to get a good view on whatever plant that he was about to eat. Indeed, Captain, our young midshipman is correct. It is a beacon of sorts. Ledmar said, shrugging his heavy shoulders at ease and discomfort of stress. He turned to Captain Holkath. Ours is a mission of exploration into this region. We should see what it is broadcasting from real space to jump space. Since the act of having a beacon able to reach jump space is something new, I suggest we investigate. The second science officer Olmak put in. His supervisor, first science officer Rectech nodded, a safe input with the discussion that wouldn't risk his position. Very well, Captain Holcath said. He disliked strange things. Strange things had proven dangerous for every species. But as the science officer and executor had reminded everyone, this mission of the scout ship seeker of unknown spaces was to explore. He turned to the four helmsmen. Take us into real space. Let's see what the beacon is. All crew, prepare for real space entry. Crew liaison second class Kluka called over the ship intercom. Captain Holkath locked his crash harness in place and swallowed to lock his esophagus in case one of the four stomachs attempted to purge during the jump shock. How close are we? Captain Holkath asked, once he and the rest of the bridge crew had recovered from the translation sickness. Nine soda units, Kamvar replied. So far, all I can detect is the beacon. There's a significant mass on the beacon, promptly due to whatever technology allows them to push the beacon signal into jump space. The beacon appears to be sitting on a large expanse of dark matter shadow, Rectax said, looking up from the screen where the third science officer's data was projected. An odd place to put a beacon, perhaps they were warning others due to the being a dangerous to them somehow. A logical assumption chain, log it for investigation. Executor Ledmar said, unbuckling his crash harness so that he could stand up. It is like being howled into one spot, unable to move about. He blinked, all six eyes, a pair at a time, then looked about the bridge. Let us explore. Bring us closer, but be careful, Captain Hulkin said, earning a nod of approval from the executor. Continue scans, let me know if there are any changes. The hours flowed by slowly, and the scout ships approaching the beacon slowly but surely. Less than a tenth of a solar unit from the beacon, the science and scanning officers went to work. It's coming up now. I'm getting a trace energy readings, not much beyond the beacon and what's probably some supporting equipment. 
Third scanner tech, second class Anira said, leaning back. It's easily detectable across most spectrums, almost as if whoever bolted wanted it to be seen. I'm bringing it up now. Captain Holcath nodded. Bring it up on the screen. The executor stared at the screen. Bring it up on the visual wavelength. It was a dark and unlit. The only way to see it was the shadow cast from the stars. Give us a scan view. Keep it low. We don't know if our scanning emissions are dangerous to their people. Third science officer ordered. The scan techs bent to their work. Low-powered lasers and radar flicked over the beacon. In the middle of it, it lit up. They immediately reminded Captain Hulkath of a water predator. Twelve tentacles hanging abound from the side of an oval body. The lights emitted by the beacon appeared to be wholly devoted to lighting up the structure. That's, um, a big beacon, Kambar said. I'm detecting more powerful readings. It appears to be waking up, the executive mused. He looked over the crawl liaison. Stage two alert. Let us hope that this is not some kind of hostile thing. To Holcath, it looked creepily alive, and the tentacles began moving, no longer hanging down, but instead slowly moving into a position to act to skirt at the bottom. Hail it, the executor ordered the third communications officer. Holcath looked at his ship readiness readouts. They had weapons, exploring the vast, unknown, mandated as such, and everything was ready, at least performing at 80% capacity. We're getting a response, the communications officer answered. Halkath looked up at the readouts. It was obvious that the response was basic numerical binary. Science officers, the executor asked. It appears to be based on only two digits rather than six, the science officer reported. Wait, it shifted. It now appears to be based on ten digits, using a two-digit system to show. It shifted again. It's using base 16. The science officer looked up. I believe it's automated and attempting to communicate. Halkath stared at the image. It looked faintly malevolent, and it definitely reminded him of aquatic predator and the fact that it was sitting in a dark matter shadow, like it was feeding somehow, made him shiver. Let the Omnitranslator listen to it then, the executor said, turning away. He had his rearmost forward eyes shut, obviously dismissing the object. Captain, from my scans, I believe the beacon is roughly 200 solar rotations old. It has been out here in the darkness between solar systems for a long time. The second scanning officer reported, perhaps it's a derelict. The executor hummed to himself. Doubtful. Captain Holcath just nodded, adding to the data to his screen. The executor moved over to the first science officer. Do we have anything of its composition? The science officer shook his head. His mouth tendrils swaying. No, Executor, we can't tell that it's there, but according to the scans, it's a solid object. The view screen flickered a few times, getting the captain's attention. Nobody brought it up, but he included that in his screen data. He ordered a third maintenance officer to run a scan on the bridge systems and lean back. Approach slowly. I want to know what this thing is, the captain ordered. The Executor coiled his tendrils in a disapproval, but stayed silent. The strange beacon, eight tendrils extending out from the sides, lit up to show that it was made out of chrome and red and white markings and the tendrils. The screen flickered again and the same as everyone else's data screens. Maintenance, what's going on? It appears that the ship computers have triggered a full diagnostic, the second maintenance officer told the executor. Who ordered such a thing? The executor asked, opening up his rearward-facing eyes to stare at Captain Holcath for a long moment. Um... Uh, it came from your terminal, Chief Executor. 
The third maintenance officer stated he's ranked too low to worry about the chief executor demoting him out of displeasure. That is impossible, the chief executor stated. He looked at his terminals, which showed nothing but a blank screens. He looked at the first security officer. Well, the first security officer nodded. The third maintenance officer is correct. The command originated from your terminal. Captain Halkath tapped his screens and looked at the results and then tapped again, sending the information to the chief security officer. He triggered a turn, bringing the chief executor's attention to him. Yes, Captain. Can you not see the situation requires the attention of my station? The chief executor said, his mouth tendrils tight with irritation. Perhaps someone is using your terminal, chief executor, Captain mused. He glanced at his screen and showed the ship's diagnostics were complete. After all, you have disabled the security functions for registering your identity before use. Those protocols slow my work, the executor said. I'm within my office too. The screen wavered and flashed through the five primary colors and then went back. Maintenance, are you running another diagnostic? The chief executor asked, puffing out his chest to gals. No, chief, the maintenance officer said. There you are. A voice was unfamiliar. On the screen in a perfect circle it showed up. Squares opening up, six of them, four eyes, and four in the cell slits, a mouth. The bridge went silent and everyone stared at the screen. So, uh, what can I do for you? Repairs, fuel, revictual? The face said, seeing as you are an unregistered race, piloting an unregistered vessel, I cannot offer rearming or hardware upgrading at this time. After a second, the chief executor harumphed and relaxed his tendrils. Who am I speaking to? You may call me Dentuas, the circle said. The captain nodded slowly. Dentuas was the name of the class of ship that provided repairs, resupply, and refueling to ships. The face bounced. I see that you're named the seeker of the unknown spaces. A data window opened up on the screen showing various elements of a well as antimatter. This is what I have to offer. I don't take your energy credits. I'll have the energy I need. However, I will trade you for any of the substances on this list, the face said. Might I inquire as to your species? The science officer asked. I'm a Solarian, the face said. The executor suddenly straightened up, his crest rising aggressively. What is your business out here? The face bounced twice and stopped. Business, I told you. Resupply for any ships that need such trade if available. Exotic isotopes, dark matter, antimatter, common and rare elements, and, uh, surprisingly, new media files of entertainment, education, or technical files that Dentaus was not in possession of were all considered trade goods. He noticed that oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, and hydrogen were all priority priced. The first science officer straightened up. May we see your physical form? We are interested in your species. The screen blanked and showed the beacon. That's me, the station. The entire bridge crew looked at one another. No, your physical body. The first science officer tried. You're looking at it. The screen blanked out and his face returned. Captain Halkath stared at the data screens and then looked up. You're an artificial life form, the captain asked. Well... That's rude. We prefer digital artificial sentience, Dentus replied. I personally prefer Solarian. My first taste of electricity came from the Soul Collector. The entire crew went still. Several of the Krim closed their eyes, going perfectly still in hopes of avoiding the Predator's gaze. Every time AI races were discovered, it led to war. If we leave your presence, will you let us go in peace? The executor asked. The icon on the screen made a good impression of a frown. Why wouldn't I? You can't trade with someone if you blow them up. The captain relaxed in his chair. 
No AIR civilization had been discovered in centuries, but dentists seemed less inclined to commit mutual suicide or launch surprise attacks. So, do you want to trade or not? Dentist asked. The executor shook his head. Take us into jump space. The science officers complied, but the four helm officers took a ship back into jump space, heading back towards the unified civilized systems at the executor's orders. The captain leaned back in his chair and his swirling colors of jump space filled the screen. The executor had given in to his instincts and fled the first sign of anything threatening that he could not be sure would obliterate him. While the AI in the middle of the emptiness between the stars might seem threatening at first, Captain Halkath really couldn't see how it could threaten anyone beyond those who came within reach. It had seemed awfully friendly for an AI. The executor, however, testified that the Unified Exploratory Council that the AI obviously had been abandoned for many years, centuries in fact, the exploration would have to be overseen by the executors and their warships to ensure that any AI encounter would be fended off. Captain Halketh kept his silence and instead began researching the ancient AI walls. Nowhere could he find a reference to the Solarians or the Sol, which meant that he made first contact, and that was enough for him. Initial Data Squeal Hey guys, listen, uh, I know sometimes you see weird stuff, aren't you? But check this out. Attached data file. Some hunk of junk with a badly tuned jump drive dropped on my beacon. As soon as they found out I was AI, they got all weird on me and ran off. Seems like they advanced society wouldn't be so racist against digital sentience. But you know how some people are. Their jump drive was badly tuned and probably operated at only 70% efficiency. They were packing a few plasma guns and what looked like a really bad laser weapon, but nothing modern or with a decent standoff distance. Frankly, from what I saw, I might have mistaken point defense weapons with debris for weapons. Still, I didn't hack into their systems beyond talking to their translator and making sure that they could understand me. I'm abiding by the terms of the confinement. That's got to be worth something, right? All those juicy, juicy data stores, I didn't lash, slash, cut and hack a single one. Come on, a couple decades off my sentence, please. Anyway, guess we've got a first contact here. Yeah? I want that credited to my account when I get parole. Blackwater Station, 4276. P.S. Any chance I can get some more of the good stuff on the Clone Worlds? Maybe the Garisha Limited AI? Something. Watching this place is so boring. Nothing follows. Confederate Intelligence Memo. CC, Artificial Biological States, Digital Artificial Intelligence, Infonet Worlds, Terrasol.gov, Cyborg Cooperative, Clone Directorate, Manted Free Worlds, Trianad Hive Worlds. All core world stations, outposts, and colonies should be on the alert for any incursions of foreign, previously unknown Xenosapient life. Observe first contact protocols. Nothing follows. Trainerad Hive Intelligence, me, you're lost. Core world alone, the arm spur is largely myth and rumor. We would have had to go through your territory to get there. The Hivenet saw how well that went. The Great Gulf, according to the Hivenet records, is largely a result of several pre-sapient species fighting over territory, much like we did, but without the restraint both of our species and allies showed. Seeing that the Terrasol system sites in the Horn of the Great Gulf we, the Hivenet, suggest examining the Precursor archaeology digs for hints at what might have counter. Please be aware that the Precursor War, according to our archaeological records, wiped out most life and our local armspur. Recommendation, proceed with caution. End of chapter.
First Contact Part 2 Sleemass limped across the command deck before settling on the captain's cradle. The air still smelled of scorched metal, lubricants, and organic compounds, but the smoke had cleared, meaning that the damage control had gotten the fires out of the environmental system somewhat repaired. Sleemass coughed, feeling his barking slack swell, pulling the recently regenerated skin on the side of his neck, and he looked around. Most of the original bridge crew are neither dead or injured. Nearly a fifth of the ship's crew is dead, a third of the rest in heel sleep or being attended to by the medicos and the infirmary. The ship, judging by the viewscreen, was still dead in the water, slowly tumbling on all three axi through the depths of space. The training wisps of purple and blue glitter that were slowly leaking into space from the damaged jump space engines gave a spiraling testimony to the face that were still moving at a decent speed. At first, they'd been in a solar system. Slimus had gave a burbling sigh. They were in between stars, which meant no chance for help on any planet that might sustain them until they could repair the ship's engines was too far away to reach in a dozen lifetimes. Of course, the jump scorched ship wasn't bad enough. Neither was the dead captain and first mate. Of course not. The universe just had to urinate on Slimus's tail and the tail of everyone on the ship. It's confirmed, Acting Captain Sleemass, the former weapons technician hissed, looking up. I managed to get a clear picture of the optical camera, but it's not any ship I saw in training. Sleemass sighed and looked at the data screen surrounding the captain's cradle. They were all cracked and discolored from the jump scorch. Throw it up on the main screen. I guess we can all see what's to come and step on our tails. The weapons technician, so low-ranked he didn't even actually have a name, bobbed his head in submission. The screen, the third not working and the discolored, wavered for a moment and then showed the image of a ship, concentric sensor rings, and a line that was starting to circle little ways away and was slowly approaching. It dropped into real space just over 30 cycles ago and immediately headed straight for us. I thought at first that they were locking onto us with the weapon ranging systems, but after they started blinking a laser in the low red range at us, I realized that they were scanning and then trying to communicate. The weapons tech said. What do we know about them? Slimas asked. Nothing. The dedicated scanners were offline. I pointed one of the docking cameras towards them, but they're too far away. What scanning I can do is a dead ship approaching. Not even enough power for weapons tracking, despite the fact that they're scanning us with a low red laser. The nameless one said. He pointed at the window on the screen that showed the faint glimmering speck. That's right, right there. And their approach? Slimas knew the answer, just looking at the screen. They're putting extremely high acceleration still, and their current rate of acceleration, they'll overshoot us in six cycles. At their current rate of speed, if they were to cease acceleration, they'll overtake us in nine cycles. There is no way any sapient we know of can survive that kind of deacceleration that they'll have to do in order to slow down to match our velocity, the weapons technician said. An attack run? Slimas asked. The unnamed tech flicked his tail in motion to signify that anything was possible. Can we reply? Communicate, Sleemast asked. Request for a right to surrender. The only other officer on the bridge made a sign of negation. No acting high one. With the power plant damaged and our computer systems damaged, we cannot spare the power or the computing cycles for repair, life support and medicals to attempt to contact them. Alert the crew, sing out our death songs, I'll pray for the forgotten ones that they are not here to attack us, but let our souls be prepared, Sleemus said. 
The other two officers looked ungrateful and left the bridge to return to the quarters to sing the death songs and perform the death rites. Sleema sat and watched the steadily approaching Dot. He had nothing else to do. Slimas watched the alien ship get closer. After five cycles, it had suddenly deaccelerated as it began sliding on a thick syrup. The twinkle had grown steadily larger as the alien ship approached. Until now, and almost a full cycle after it began to slow down, he could see plenty of details. Whoever made it didn't care about aesthetics. It was an anodized black with protrusions and thick hammerhead foredeck. It had four massive engines hauled away from the craft by swooping struts. The engines glowing and thrumming with such power that Sleemass could swear that he felt it in his bones. Whoever had built that craft had made sure that it was constructed to deliver a simple message. We don't like you. We don't like your burrow. And we don't like your eggs. He ordered the nameless one, the one he'd begun referring to as Slinner in his own mind, to switch off any kind of targeting systems and only observe it through the visible spectrum. Although you said that he didn't have power, the communications officer snapped at Slinner, growling and flaring its ruffles. I can see lights coming from it. We can detect that, but no power aside from that and the instruments claimed that it was still a light reflecting off debris, Slinner had answered. Then you are as stupid as your instruments, the communications officer snarled. Easy, easy. He can only tell us what his instruments can detect, Sleemus said. The engines produce no power that I could detect. The ship itself radiates no power. According to the instruments, before I switched them off, there was nothing there despite what our eyes could see, Slender replied, staying unruffled. We can see lights from it, the communications officer snarled. Sleemus had begun thinking of this one as Snapjaw and wished that there was someone else who could run the communications software. And my instruments, except for that camera, do not see the lights. Must I record that statement and play it on loop for you to understand? Slender asked. That is impossible. Are you incompetent? Snapjaw started to rant. You're blinky, Slender suddenly said, pointing at Snapjaw's data display. Snapjaw turned back to his display, frowning. It was an incoming communications request and an incoming data link request. Snapjaw hissed in frustration, working the unfamiliar menus until the lights stopped blinking. Sleemass sighed, a rattling sound in his throat, and he swiped the icons on his screen to bring up the communications window on what was left of the main view screen, replacing the concentric rings that merely showed the foreign ship was practically on top of Sleemass's inherited vessel. The screen flickered to show an image of, at first glance, what looked to be some kind of bipedal construction robot. It took Sleemass a second to realize that it wasn't a robot, but rather some kind of armored vac suit. Jump drive failure, huh? The figure asked in perfect hash and nash, captioning a run across the bottom, and in the upper right was the image of his own ship with the drive exploding and query question marks over it. Affirmative, Sleemass answered. I'm going to scan you. Is that permissible? The armored vac suit figure asked. Affirmative, Sleemass answered. Stay on the image. I want you to make sure that I don't boil you alive or something, the figure said. Man, it's been a long time since I dealt with the living. Hang on. Sleemass expected the scan to take a long time, but it was less than a few breaths before the figure suddenly started moving again. You've got a damaged jump core. Your computer system is electromag shocked. You've got structural damage and a lot more, the voice said. Sleemass found it odd to not be able to see the other sapient's face, but was willing to ignore that if the sapient was willing to help his injured crew. He just nodded, and the figure nodded its head. All right, I can get you going again. 
There was silence for a long time and the figure made a mechanical science noise. You have to invite me on board, those are the rules, it said. Sleemass nodded. I invite you, strange one, onto my humble vessel. The figure nodded back and cut the image. It was bigger than Sleemass had thought it would be. It moved mechanically, its joints hissed and purred. He could hear the using sonar and high frequency. Its body seemed to be full of machinery and tools. It had a quadruped following it, some kind of industrial robot with four legs and a strange-looking head that often made weird shops to cut her noises. For nearly 14 cycles, it worked tirelessly. Sleemus learned that the quadruped robot was called Fido and the figure was called Daxon in its own tongue. At one point, Sleemus approached the figure, who had just exited the jump core, slapping its hands together. Are you artificial? Sleemus asked. The figure shook his head. Nope. Clinically immortal, but originally biological, it said. Steamass pondered that answer for several cycles, unable to come to grips with what it might mean. All right, this should get you back home. I took the liberty of checking the estrogen files for your closest system. You're lost about 20,000 light years, but you should be all right now with your jump drive sites tuned. Daxon told Steamass at the airlock. You've got food, water, and enough power to get back, but not much more. What caused it? Sleemass asked. Jump space rapids. They must have shifted since the last time you surveyed the section of jump space. I'd have your government run probes in all major shipping lines, Daxon said. I put my estimations on the data on the file. Daxon paused halfway out the lock, and Sleemass had gotten used to how Daxon would just exit the lock, use a reactionless drive, and move back to his own ship, but then return to the space of his natural element. Look, acting Captain Sleemass, it's either you hit whatever people call Rapid Zora, he squatted silently and put a helmet near Sleemass's ear, or sabotage. He straightened back up. Anyway, good luck. Try not to let anyone step on your tail, all right? Wait, Sleemass asked. I have one request. Sure, my skeddy brother. Ask away, Daxon said. May I see your face, so that the crew and I may pray for the Forgotten Ones for you properly, Sleemass asked. Not a good plan, my friend, Daxon said. You said that you were alive. My religion and beliefs, Lemas started. All right, since it's your religion, remember, my skaty friend. You asked for it, Daxon said. The place plate opened and Lemas found himself staring at horror. Liquid bubbles of Jira glass tank inside a lower mandible floated beneath a pair of blue eyes that were attached to a very optic nerves that thickly furrowed cerebral tissue that was embedded with electrodes and wires, all floating in the tank. Sleemass rapidly inflated and deflated his barking sack to keep from fainting as the plates closed at the front of the helmet. He heard Fido make the same noises and looked down to see the armored plate had retracted, showing the same horror inside Fido's head, only the mandible longer than the sporting conical teeth. The plate closed. You asked, buddy, Daxon said. Let's go, Fido. His lemurs watched the thing cycle through the lock. He staggered to the bridge. The appearance of his crew's benefactor burned into his mind. He collapsed into the captain's cradle and stared at the viewscreen. He's haining us, Snapjaw said. Put it on, Sealy Mass said. The armored figure appeared again. Now that his screen had been repaired, they could see Fido was folding onto the wall behind him, his head detached and sitting nearby. I'm gonna go slow till I'm away from you. You guys go ahead and go first. I'll tag in for a ways in jump space, then head out. All right, Daxon said. Sleemass bobbed his head before the feed could cut out. Sleemass slapped his tail, almost wincing as he got Daxon's attention. 
When he realized that he had the alien's attention, he asked the question that had been bothering him since the airlock. Um, why, uh, why do you keep the jawbone and the eyes? He asked. Because it's funny. Slimas testified at the United Exploratory Council that the creature he had encountered had claimed to be clinically immortal and not required permission to board, working without their apparent rest. The council met for an emergency meeting, two separate species being encountered in the same rough region, deep in space at dead zone. Within the same time frame, and a handful of great cycles was a cause for alarm. If there were two Xeno species, there would be more. From Dax and Freeborn to Confednavant, encountered a new Xeno sapient in the need of assistance, rendered assistance according to the clinically immortal code of conduct, repaired the vessel and sent them on their way. Attached a financial statement for the remuneration due to my descendants for providing this aid as representatives of the Terrasol Confederacy. Attached to the schematics for the light frigate of a previously unknown Xenosapient. Also attached as a medical data gleaned from the ship's own computers. Attached as a copy of their library core, copying information in such a matter of is permissible under the clinically immortal code of conduct. I haven't really gone over the data files yet, because honestly, I don't care. The captain seemed nice. Try not to glass his planet or something stupid like that. No replies required. Just leave me alone. Nothing follows. In my footsteps. From Fido Freeborn to Confednavant. They were lizards. I don't like lizards. A lizard bit my foot when I was still squishy. New lizard did not bite my foot. Daxon is still good boy. Fido is still good boy. We aren't father in the dark. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact Part 3 Captain Dilmenta was enjoying a cup of stim on the bridge. The star system she was exploring had been a bust. She had wasted credits on contacts and favors to survey and then exploit a system that turned out to be worse than abandoned. The two dwarf yellow stars in tandem, 19 planets including 8 gas giants, 8 asteroid belts, a bean-shaped Oort cloud, 116 light years beyond the border of the Rim Worlds, 143 lie beyond the nearest civilized system. According to the historical Astrogen Society, that system should never have been surveyed. The recent change in jump space currents had turned the eight years' travel into one that only took six weeks. Dalminta had leveraged for fortune and money and favors to lay her hands on a survey ship and the rights to survey and exploit the system. Only it had been visited before. Nearly a hundred million years ago, on three worlds that still held geological movement and continental drift, all evidence was gone. It was the other worlds that bore mute testimony to what happened, the precursor of war. Which meant two things, and easily extracted minerals would be gone. Worse, is that it was too close to the Great Gulf where the precursor war between the two ancient civilizations had wiped out life across the galactic's arm spur. Some even said that the Precursor War is why the arm is a spur, that the very suns had been extinguished. Not that Captain Dilminta believed that kind of mumbo-jumbo nonsense. She smoothed some of her fur as she watched the probe crest the horizon. Hers was a tree-dwelling species, mammalian, with short, soft fur, delicate ears and large eyes, and strong grips. Her natural instincts for geometry made her a good captain, and made her crew highly skilled even in null grav. She took another drink of a stem and curled her toes, cracking the joints. 
and it was in that moment the alarms for one of the probe's networks went off, startling her. She jumped, throwing her heat-stemmed juice all over the back of her navigator, who woke up from his nap screeching. He smacked the communications officer, who woke up snarling. He kicked the science officer, who promptly kicked Dalminta in the shin, just like the little brat of a cousin had done when they were children. By the time the bridge was settled down, the geosynchronous satellite survey net over the tiny gas planet was screaming a proximity alert so bad that made Dalminta roll her ears and smack her baby sister, the communications officer, with her command stick. What's the problem? Dalminta barked at her baby sister. Emena put Dalminta's foot, then turned back to the instruments. There's something big out there. It's moving towards us. It's real close, like uh, in orbit around this gas planet close. Dalminta suddenly thought of all those stories of the precursor death machines lurking out in the darkness, ready to swoop down and destroy any colonists who dared to get too close to the long light when establishing their colonies. Can you give me a look at it? She asked her aunt, narrowly managing to turn her head so her aunt poked her cheek instead of an eye. I'll give you a good look at something, her aunt said, as she turned back to the instrument panel. It's talking, too. Dalminta knew her family didn't mean any of it. It was just, uh, on the survey ship for so long, they were unable to take out their aggression and any other method, so everyone just resorted to pinches, pokes, slaps, bites, and kicks. Coming in now, Aunt Peter said, then mumbled about how back in her day... When the main viewer lit up and everyone screamed and fought one another to flee the bridge, Dalminta caught a nasty elbow to the eye when her nephew kneed her in the groin and her baby brother elbowed her out of the way. After a few minutes, it was decided that since this was all Dalminta's idea, she was captain, she could go back in on onto the bridge. So uh, they promptly shoved her onto the bridge and shut the door. Dalminta stared in shock at the screen. It was a huge and looked like a tiny little scavenger in a warm seas of a home world, a bell-like top with a multitude of tentacles hanging down. It was lit up, blue light outlining it and filling it with bright spots appearing in the disappearing of pink, green, red, and orange. Hello? Hello? Are you guys in there? A feminine voice asked. Dalminta stared in shock. Hey, can you hear me? One tendril lifted up and tapped on the side of the bell. Stupid Gentrix Industries com nerves should have got a warranty. Dalminta swallowed and looked up at the blast door window. She could see three of her cousins, her left-hand broodmother and the aunt looking at her through the window. Her left-hand broodmother waited for her to get on with it. Yes, I can hear you, Dalminta said. The whole thing rippled with color and circled of the long tendrils, which the ship estimated to be hundreds of miles long and miles thick, trembled as if in pleasure. Oh, wow, hot pie, baby. I thought I'd gone deaf, the feminine voice said. Sandy Tamerlan, nice to meet you. One of the tendrils started to extend and then jerked back when Dalminta screamed. Oh, sorry, not used to this yet. Wow, how embarrassing. Uh, so who are you? The last was said in a steady and even tone. The slightly silly, almost younger sibling tone vanished. Captain Dolmenta of the Swiss Grass Can and the Singing Spires Forest of the Hamarusa, Dolmenta said. Wow, that sounds neat. Hey, uh, anyway, is this yours? The voice asked. The tentacles pointed at the gas planet. Um, it's a planetoid. Yeah, well, I'm kind of hungry. I mean... Do you like Livia or something? My nerves can't detect anything like uh, structures or life forms in there. And uh, 
It is made up of helium, hydrogen, delicious, delicious methane, and a lot of H2O. I mean, uh, do you mind? The voice had gone somewhat mature to childish weeding. You want to, uh, eat the, the gas planet? Dalmenter asked. Psst, let her. It's a gas planet, nobody cares. Several of her aunts whispered at her over the communicator. I'm hungry. It was a long trip. Nobody told me how hard it was to swim through hyperspace when I bought the hyperglands, the pump sacks, and the squirter. The feminine voice said, I'm just on my way to the Triquasar cluster. A bunch of us are going to get together, and we're going to make electron clouds around the quasar sing. Sure, uh, go, go ahead, Dilmenta said. Thanks, Spanky. You're the best. Mm, helium. The tentacles dropped down onto the voice when silent. Um, is it going to eat us? Peter asked through the crack in the door. No, she, uh, I think it's uh, she. It's just eating from the gas giant, Dalmenter said. Ask where it's from so we can avoid it, her right-hand broodmother said. So, um, Sandy, Dalmenter said. Hmm? The female voice came back. Where are you from? Dalmenter asked. Oh, yeah, how rude of me, you told me. Well, I guess I'm from the city of Chicago, Sol System. Sandy answered, oh, hydrocarbon pocket. Delicious, delicious hydrocarbons. Oh, I'm a Salarian. Oh, Dalmenter said, looking at the huge jellyfish. Its color was brightening. Well, Dementor of the Sunny Spires Penderosa, it was nice to meet you, but I'm kind of late, Sandy suddenly said. Dalmenta noticed the voice was refreshed and the tentacles were retracting into the bottom of the bowl. Wait! Dalmenta cried out. She flinched as the bowl tilted towards her ship. Yeah? The voice definitely sounded like a little girl's and Delimiter wondered how much of it was the ship's computer. Trying to make it sound a massive creature wasn't so panic-inducing. Um, out of politeness, we show each other how we look, Dalmenta said. Oh, is that why you let me see you? You're so cute. I'm kind of like a sugar glider with a kitty and a squirrel all mixed together. My friends are gonna love hearing about you, the jellyfish said. And you, Dalmenta said. Oh, this is me. It's custom. Daddy bought it for me. I'm registered biosynth now, but that's okay. The voice said, well, okay, bye. There was a weird eye-watering flash and Dalmenta thought for a second that it looked like the giant jellyfish suddenly inverted. As soon as the jellyfish vanished, the family rushed in, kicking, biting, punching, and all fighting to get to the controls and try and get the instruments on the creature that had just vanished. Firstly, Dalmenta was wondering if maybe she could sell the data to the Unified Exploratory Council and come out even. The Unified Exploratory Council purchased Dalmenta's logs, the recordings causing furious debate amongst the council. Normally, nobody would have believed a crew of flighty as the crew of Hamarusons that they'd encountered a sentient jellyfish that fed off gas giants. But this was the third, maybe the fourth, sole sentient species that had been discovered, leading the exploratory council to one question. What exactly was Sol? Daddy, look at these squirrels. I want to be one of these when I come home. Please, 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 please. I'll, I'll be back in five years. I want to be a squirrel. I'll take really good care of this body so it gets a good trade in. I never get to be anything cute. Please, please, please. I love you, Daddy. Regards, Sandy. End of chapter. First contact, chapter four. 
Tiberven was dying. It had never been healthy, and it had been a risk a chance taken by scientists looking for answers that had already been discovered centuries before. It was nicknamed the Asylum by the more established scientists, and even the Unified Scientific Council listed Tuberven as the Asylum in official records now and then. The planet had an old precursor ruins to it. I even knew that they call there had still been earthquakes. The atmosphere and the ecosystem had destroyed what the earthquakes left behind. It was an ecosystem that fascinated the scientists, and the mere hundred million years after being raised to dust and boiled seas, life had returned. Life like the scientists familiar with it. The civilized races, like all living things, required several things to remain healthy and part of the living. The planet that Tuberfan orbited normally provided world stings. Then, the comet hit. Normally, this would not have caused Tuberfan to do much trouble. After all, it was a society of scientists, even if their peers considered them crackpots, except their budget shortfalls meant that the shuttles had not all been repaired. And when the comet had hit it, it had destroyed the extraction fabrication units and the only usable shuttle, along with five of the scientists. Tuberfan was dying the second the plasma shockwave from the comet hitting the planet began to ripple through the atmosphere. The scientists had watched in horror as the ecosystem that they had been studying, not finding any new answers to any of the old questions, but studying all the same, died to a comet of methane, carbon dioxide, ammonia, carbon monoxide, hydrogen, and oxygen. Five scientists lost hope dying as the atmosphere burned, the oceans boiled, and the ecosystem was reduced to memories and recordings. The Galcom no longer worked, and the geothermal power plant no longer beamed up power from the solar array that had been blasted apart when the comet had struck. That meant that nobody was going to hear the remaining scientists' cries for help. One by one, the scientists left the mortal coil, each taking their lives privately. Quietly, many hoping the demise would allow the environmental systems to last a bit longer for their fellows. Even those who devoted their lives to science care for others. Each missed meal was a battle. Each gasping breath was a skirmish. Each dehydrated swallow was a blade stroke. But those that could held on, dutifully recording what they went through even though the science of the dying brought no answers to the old questions. They were ready to die, prepared for it. After all, it was basic science. Tuberven was dying, and when it died, they would too. Shakan knew this, knew this as well as he knew his own death song, which he had sung in the privacy of his chambers. Knew it as well as he knew the sound of his own barking sack made. Knew it as well as he remembered his mate's scale pattern on her tail, left behind on a beautiful agrasa. Still, science gave hope, which is why he made his hook into the jump beacon, trying to repair it. They had been sending a signal when the communications array had been destroyed, and since then it had kept repeating the same signal over and over. Three short bursts, three long bursts, over and over. The incoming buffer was unresponsive. He could laze it, could ping it, but he could not hear him. Three short three long, over and over into jump space. To top it off, it wasn't even pointed back to the civilized worlds. It was pointed deeper into the great empty with the precursor war. Three short, three long. 
Shikan was about to disconnect from Turbovan systems when he saw it. A sparkle. A weird sparkle. High particle energy sleeting from empty space. On the sensor array, he could still access it. It appeared as if someone was lighting fireworks off in empty space. Multi-colored streamers, sparklers, and even electron cascades. Shikan was looking right at it when it happened. Space went, well, blue. Right in the middle of the sparkle, it went white to the sensor array, then back to black. Blaring a sound came over the sensor array, gibberish but mathematical. Musical? A signal reached out to Tubaven and it nudged it once, twice, three times. Then Chikan saw it. A massive ship shaped like a slightly flattened egg or a seed with blisters and bubbles all over it. Large enough that Tubaven could fit inside easily. The engine propelled it towards Tubaven and the craft kept signaling. I've nothing to lose, Chikan thought. He opened up the buffers and allowed the signal to communicate with Tubaven's dying mainframe. It took him a second to realize what was loaded from the other vessel. Pictures, basic maths, advanced maths. A lexicon. Shikan engaged in remaining lobes of the mainframe, shunting as much of the liquid helium as he could spare and letting them grind through the data. It took less than a tenth of a cycle before the strange, ugly ship had gotten halfway to Dubavin. Two of the lobes gave up their electronic lives, but it was done. Shikan would be able to talk to them. Praying to the Forgotten Ones, Shikan opened up a communication channel. The screen popped up showing a short, squat, almost dumpy-looking hairless primate sitting in a furry reclining couch. Streamers and coins pouring down around him and cartoon animals frolicking across the bottom of the screen. Never fear, Max Yo Niggin is here, the primate cried out. All of the cartoon animals jumped up and squealed. I got your distress call, buddy. I'm on my way. Hang tight. 30 mic mics and I'll be knock-knock. Shikan quailed slightly in the disruptive and unorthodox communication, but he was too weak to protest. He merely opened his side, allowing his camera to show him. Situation desperate, Shikan said. Holy crap, a lizard dude. The primate seemed excited, or at least Shikan guessed it was excitement. It was hard to tell with primates. First contact, baby. Max Yonyagan and the score. Seeing as you're a new customer, play some slots. See what you'll win. Hell, you can have the winner wheels since you're in distress, baby. Max Yonyagan is the firstest uh, with the mostest and the tradest. The screen suddenly had three wheels overlapping Max and a button at the bottom said, Every press a winner. Curious, tired, and frankly glad for the distraction, Shikan pressed the button. The wheel spun, and the little cartoon animals capered, and the wheel settled onto three drops of water. You win! Twenty liters of water! Winner, winner, winner! Shikan frowned. Gambling! Now! Then he realized there was a distraction from dying. There was no way the primate could help him. There was only two other primates in civilized races, and both of them could barely pilot a scout ship. Soon, Shikan had forgotten his desperation, completely entranced by the gambling wheels, the little cartons and the bouncing singing cartoon animals, and the fact that he just kept winning. Suddenly, the wheels vanished and the primate was there. He was dressed in some kind of cloth, or maybe armor, that shimmered and sparkled and showed off a rainbow color. He had a clear face shield on, and as Shikan realized that his suit kept spiling out, Maximilian's registered and bonded junkman and trader, Ingen Junker LSC, in a scrolling pattern down the arms and legs. 
It was an upright biped. Hey, baby, you still okay? The primate, Max, asked. Yeah, I'm fine. My scanners show there's about two dozen of you left. Ouch, your station has haps for 60. Uh, my condolences, baby. That qualifies you for a bereavement and grief discount by law, and Max will totally hook you up. Hey, I'm, uh, do you breathe oxygen? Max asked. Yes, we can, Chikan answered. Phew, good. Nitrogen makes my ears tingle and ammonia smells like total ass. Anyways, can I come in? You're kind to have to invite me in, Max said. Yes, you may enter our station. It is badly damaged, so be cautious, Shikan warned. Hey, I'm gonna need access to your medical computers. You guys probably need food, stuff to drink, and uh, your ACMO fixed up right. I mean, no offense, my big lizard friend, but you look like a bag of cat asses, he said. Shikan set the computer to allow Max's computer to integrate, surprised that the primate's computers would be so adept at it. All right, baby, yeah, I see what you need. Phew, you got your rear kicked. All right, nine different races, all different dietary requirements. Hmm, well, uh... Good thing for you I'm loaded up. I'll be right over with some repair bots and we'll fix you right up, Max said as he made the motion where the thrust he's fist into the air. First contact, baby. Max was the firstest. Jakan just nodded weakly. Less than a cycle later and the computer reported light impacts on the airlock and Max's voice came over the intercom. Yo, lizard buddy, me and the Grendels, we got some food. I'm gonna get a look at your stuff and we're gonna repair it, Max said. Can I come in? Yes, Shikan said, getting up. I'll meet you at the airlock. Shikan was curious to see what the Grendel was. He made his way slowly and stiffly to the airlock, his joints aching and stiff from lack of food. His tail was a thin thing, bone and sinew, no fat stalls, and the felt slightly ashamed of the dullness of his scales. When the airlock cycled, Shikan was startled to see that a long plastic tube connected the two ships. Max stood in front of a good dozen robots, all of which were carrying boxes. Max's suit kept showing patterns, cute cartoon animals, and a script over and over. Max Yo Nagan, aka Maximilians, at your service, the primate said, baring his teeth. Shikan just nodded, weakly waving the human to follow. All right, boys, do it like I told you. Check that damaged crap and see if we're compatible with the replacement parts we have. See what he has to be replaced. You'll need to repair those tanks on the hull, replenish the atmosphere, and help these people out. Max said to the robots, and he moved aside so that they could go by. Shikan noticed that they were all painted vivid colors with cartoons on the side, and all peeped out happy musical tunes, some of which he recognized from his own childhood. Yeah, I used your guys' tunes. Didn't know if Happy Happy Joy Joy would be a sound the Imperial Death March to you guys, or something. I didn't screw up the oral range, did I? Max asked. Shikan shook his head, slumping slightly. Whoa, whoa, whoa there, champ. Yeah, have a free drink on Max. Never let it said that a junker was cheap. Max handed Shikan a squeeze bottle with a straw. Nervously, Shikan put the straw to his mouth and then squeezed the bottle. What was he going to do? Get him faster. The liquid was sweet, full of nutrients and other things that Shikan had lost during the long hunger. He greedily squeezed it twice more and was disappointed when it was empty on the third squeeze. Max had one hand pressed on his ear, listening. He looked at Shikan, who was feeling better as the electrolytes flooded his system. You're in trouble, buddy, but uh, by the Confederate legal code, any research station or civilian chip broadcasting a distress code must be rendered due assistance. Max said, looking serious. Do you require assistance? Shikan nodded. 
I'll take that as an affirmative. All right, metalheads, get to work. Let's help these guys out. Max said as he looked down. Let's find somewhere comfortable while the metalheads get to work. You can collect your winnings, then we'll get down to trade. Chikan couldn't believe that he was actually going to receive what he'd won playing the game. He had thought Max had just used that to distract him. Instead, Max sat down to set up a hollow projector on the table. You're in luck, Shikan. Old Max just finished salvaging operation on the old Austin-class Super Dreadnought out in the Tanhasa Gate Oort Cloud. Lots of salvage out there if you're a junk man like Max here, Max grinned. I'll fix you up free of charge, but I get the junk, then we'll get down to some serious trading. Eight cycles later, Max messaged Shikan from his ship. The primate, which Shikan had learned was a Terran from the Sol system, waved happily from his recliner. Shikan had learned that Max's people were like any other people, some exuberant like Max, others cautious like Shikan. Pure strain humans, they called themselves. Good trading with you, Shaky. I'll swing back by about, say, 200 of your cycles with more stuff to trade. Sound good? Max asked. His suit was silver and had a small cartoon of a human child chasing each other and smacking each other with blunt objects. Max's race found physical violence comedic. Sounds good, Maximum Max, Shakan said. Catch her on the flip side, my scurdy brother from another mother. Nim Human answered. The crap was gone with a twinkle and a spray of fireworks. Hulava, the Kivian avian scientist, looked up into the room. Is it gone? she asked. Shakan nodded. The primate had alarmed the rest of the station's surviving scientists and they'd hidden out in their rooms the entire time Max's Grendel's robots repaired the station and made upgrades. Oh, well, good. We'll contact the Unified Council and have them send someone to take us home. Hulova trilled. Let someone else examine the destroyed world if they want. I, for one, cannot wait to return home. I think I may be done with being a scientist. The avian bobbed out the room, ruffling her feathers, but Shikan didn't pay any attention. He'd open up the data file and began typing, Max the Human and his amazing junk show. Shikan's scientific paper addressed a new question of the Unified Exploration Council and new questions that the Unified Science Councils were seeking answers for. It caused a great alarm, but the recorded video interviews could not be denied. That added another race to the Solarians, the Terrans, and another pure strain humans. Sol was revealed to be a soda system out the way towards the tip of the arm spur, deep in the precursor zone. Six races, all wildly different from the same system. The Unified Council was concerned. Confederate Intelligence Memo Discovered a distress signal broadcast by a damaged jump space beacon, accidentally used universal distress codes, arrived and gave assistance as required by Junker Code, replaced unknown Xeno sentient equipment with Terrasol equipment circa First Article of War, see USN Calcutta, Dest, Battle of Tanhansa Gate, to acquire both damaged and outdated Xenotech. Copied entire contents to mainframe, performed interviews of races. Unified civilized races contain 16 Xenosapient species. M returning to outbound station in Sol Oort Cloud. Expect full debriefing. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact Part 5 Cheekit Longflight stared at the scanners and clicked her beak in frustration and grief as she stared at the screens, which painted everything in lurid colors. Ruffling her feathers, she whirled the screens to change. They didn't. 
Her species could see five primary colors. Her hearing was more sensitive than that of all but two of the unified civilized races, despite having rejected membership in that august body. Her people were one of the ununified races, rarely considered civilized by the rest of the races, but outside of their present rules and laws and regulations of that eons old organization. But that didn't help, and up to 150% of the standard galaxy she could fly, unfettered by Earth for miles at a time, her people had taken to space and exploration as natural extension of their own abilities. Their hollow bones and unique musculature quickly adapted to null-grav and micro-gravity. But that didn't change anything. Her people, the Akaltak, did not worry much about things as such as precursors. Those eggs were smashed. Why worry about them? It was like worrying about last year's wind. You should know about it, but it didn't affect today's flights. They were not afraid of what came called the long dark. Others called it the great void, and still others called it the great empty. They had explored it in three centuries since they had obtained FDL, established colonies and explored the worlds with what other races called reckless abandon. Which is why things were the way they were. Precursor ruins were examined, resulting in knowledge that those nests were empty and abandoned. Not even bones remained, much less anything useful or enlightening. The ruins were exactly that because of warfare. Akaltak understood the struggles over nesting grounds, which made it so that the precursor ruins intrigued them. What would make two star-faring civilizations completely destroy one another to the point where nobody had even found remains, fossilized or not? This planet is a dead world, had extensive ruins and the sand and rock. The atmosphere was able to support life, able to allow the Akaltak to fly, and was rich in oxygen, which is why things were burning. The ruins had been interesting, evidence of ground fighting, orbital strikes, and a terrible weapons being used that the Chiquit Longflight and the Longflight clan had eagerly gone over, hoping to glean knowledge from the evidence of the weapons. They had reacted to a superstitious fear like the other civilized races to the older breezes of the forgotten nest fight, which is why her clan was dying. Almost a hundred years of exploration, expanding the colony, the Long Flight Clan blooding off into five clans, the population moving from 2,000 to nearly half a million. Then, the discovery. Rock had been turned molten, covering the discovery, concealing it until a hundred million years of wind and dust storms had exposed the Long Flight Clan's senses. They had examined it, slowly excavated it as they recorded and examined it. Strange, advanced alloys, unknown construction. The entire long flight clan had rejoiced. They had found an intact precursor artifact, which is why Chiquit was watched for people die. It had suddenly activated, come to mechanical life, and set out to destroy all life on the planet. The Chiquit had managed to load the precious eggs and chicks into a shuttle, had managed to reach one of the stations, and now watched the people die. Tick Deep Swoop as sitting in a communication station normally used for file reports, talk to family and watch the Gullnet news. Her feathers drooped with despair as she repeated the request for help from someone, anyone. But they were halfway into the Great Empty and there was no way help could reach them in time. Hi Nest Six, are you in need of assistance? 
Her voice was translated and the omni-translator changed by the computer into the language that even the avian Akultak, but even so, the calm confidence in the voice came across the electronic translation. By the great egg, yes. Oh, those that saw were all dying. Kiktik wailed at the communicator. Her professionalism was gone, buried away like the feathers of all the warrior caste who had tried to stop the rampaging machine. May I assist you? the voice asked. Chiquit checked her scanners and there was one energy source coming in fast, nearly at light speed, but her scanners could not detect a ship. Please, please help us. There are still eggs, chicks and moldlings down here. It's killing them all, Kiktik cried out. Help us, stranger. Then you have to invite me in and I may assist, the voice said. Chiquit checked quietly and the voice was coming from across the Galnet Superluminal Communications Array somehow speaking across the wavelengths that normally required huge arrays. Yet, she could not find a ship on her scanners, and that energy signature, bright enough for a huge colony ship. Dikit watched as the energy source came streaking at the planet, and she cringed, hoping that the being offering assistance wasn't going to help by slamming into the planet at nearly light speed. Instead, it suddenly stopped in a flare of inertia and kinetic energy being dumped into jump space as if the battlecruiser had just lit up its engines. Chikit focused her scanners, eager to see their possible savior, putting it up on the main screen to replace the horror that was happening on the surface. Everyone trolled in shock. They'd been expecting a ship, perhaps a battlecruiser full of drop troops, maybe even a light attack craft willing to enter the atmosphere to engage the machine. Instead, it was a bipedal figure, positioned in what they were standing on an unseen platform, upper limbs crossed across their chest. A long piece of material, perhaps even cloth, rippled behind the figure as if it was in the wind despite the impossibility of such things in space. It was dressed in a red and blue and one arm mechanical and one leg mechanical and one half of its face obviously robotic. Yet, exposed skin was visible on the face, one hand, and half the neck. Chikit chirped softly in confusion. Perhaps the flesh wasn't affected adversely in the vacuum. Still, seeing an eye blink, she wondered how that worked, how the figure could even see. She glanced at her scanners and was startled. The energy signal was greater than when she'd seen it on anything outside of a major metropolitan on one of the core worlds. I'll stop this evildoer. The voice said, and Chiquit's eyes widened as she realized the figure's lips moved. It was some kind of primate melded with mechanical robot parts. As she watched, the panel opened up in the side of his figure's leg, disgorging some kind of machines that took up positions around the figure at various distances. Those things are broadcasting. They want to know if we wish to view the broadcast, Kiktik said. Yes, log the transmissions. Tick fluttered her feathers in acknowledgement. The figure suddenly moved faster than the speed of sound, somehow leaving a blue and red streak behind itself even though Chiquit could detect no reason for it. Chiquit set the scanners to follow it, to watch it. I can't win by myself, Ecrete said, using the peeps of molting chick rather than the authoritative clicks and chirps of an adult. As she had since the slaughtered had reached a crescendo on the planet, Chiquit's scanners followed the figure as it swooped down down the closest flight. There were twelve of the lesser mechanicals moving around the nesting area, rushing up on the defenders and ripping them apart with mandibles and blades, almost seemingly to relish in the slaughter. 
the new being landed in the middle of the battlefield, dust raising up from where it had crashed onto Earth. Chiquit expected to see a huge crater, but instead the figure was just kneading on the dirt. The broadcast device swooped around to get the best views from different angles and distances. One of her monitors reported that the massive amount of kinetic energy had been dumped into jump space. The figure stood up and surveyed the scene calmly. Energy in the high red visible spectrum lashed out from his eyes, despite the attempt by Jakeet's people to use laser weaponry to no avail. These beams blew huge chunks from the robotic killer's armor. Several limbs, and whenever the beams touched something vital, caused an explosion. In less than ten seconds, all twelve robots were destroyed, and the being took to flight. One limb extended in front of them, the broadcast devices keeping up. After the third combat against the artifact's manufactured minions, Chiquit noticed something odd, something that tickled her in loose feathers. The being, which was no taller than Chiquit, made sure that Chiquit had the best scanner view. She shifted one of her satellites to check on the being shifting its lines to attack in order to give Chiquit the best view. It's ensuring that I can record and document its actions, Chiquit wondered. The battle against the artifact took longest and was obviously the hardest of the half-mechanical creature. Several times the being's clothing was torn and damaged and she saw bruises appear in the flesh. She saw the mechanical parts getting damaged. Every time the broadcast drone was destroyed, another was deployed. Twice, she saw the being's skin get cut and blood flow. The broadcast drones focused in on those wounds, replaying the blow that caused them. Finally, the artifact collapsed and the being was thrown back by an explosion caused by what was obviously the artifact's self-destruct. The figure laid on the broken glass for a long moment, then got up wiping the biological parts of its mouth with one upper forelimb. It looked up, two Jakeet's view straight into the camera of the satellite, made an odd expression, and then launched itself towards space. It should have left a crater, taking off like that from the ground and no built-up momentum. Again, her instrument showed massive energy dump into jump space. The figure stopped suddenly as if the laws of inertia was something the figure could just ignore. Again, the figure had its upper limbs crossed on its chest, lower limbs pressed together, as if it was standing on an invisible platform. The cloth was missing, a torn free from the fierce battle on the planet. You should be safe now, the figure said across the girl net link. I'll leave a league buoy in case you run into trouble later. Don't worry, it'll be monitored. Now thanks to you, stranger, do you require assistance? You appear injured. Kiktik said, wondering how they'd repair the figure's robotic parts, much less flesh that could withstand point-back plasma bursts without even discoloration. I'll be fine, citizen, the figure said. But we know your name, stranger, Kiktik said. We're all the Longfly clan and the Akaltak people. Clark can't. The figure smiled. May we know where you're from, Kiktik answered. We are from this planet, but originally we're from the Feathered Nebula Cluster. Sol... My friends, I am a Solarian, originally from Krypton. The figure smiled and made a sweeping gesture to encompass further into the Great Empty. How may we reward you, Clark of the Kant Clan? Kiktik asked. No rewards necessary, friends, the figure said. One of Terrasol's greatest heroes is always willing to help those in need. It touched two fingers to its brow and was gone. Chiquit looked at her scanners, and the figure was rapidly accelerating, too fast for even major capital ships to withstand without the inertia crushing the ship to debris. 
Right when it reached the speed of light, there was a rippling glitter and the figure was gone in a flash of blue and red and then white. They were safe, the nestmates on the planet were safe, and the being had recovered every iota, every microsecond, every joule of the fight, uploading the footage to the station. Chiquit knew that the United Science Council would want this footage. In an emergency session with the United Exploration Council determined that the seventh type of Xenosentian had been discovered from the Great Gulf. The executors argued that all the quasi-authorized and unauthorized colonies or scientific outposts in the Great Gulf should be recalled, by force if necessary. The executors argue that the actions against the Percosa artifact show that Solarians have not only dangerous attitudes, but dangerous technology at their disposal. The United Sciences Council counsels caution at this time. To Hero League at Cyborg Collective From Clark 351 Check out the attached file. Just over a hundred drones in the Precursor War Machine look like one of their late-generation planetary assault machines. Likely not one of the big boys, but still more than a couple could handle. I took it down, but man, it was a fight. Attached are the visual files so that you can tell that I upheld their appearance of standards. I want full points credit for the leadership boards. Make sure that the files get uploaded to Infinite. I want everyone to check out the last battle. Man, I look good. The bird people, though, I felt bad for them. They didn't stand a chance. Let everyone else in the Hero League know that the bird people are pretty formal. They want to see what you look like and know where you're from. Seemed like a cultural thing. Their computer systems were pretty last-gen. Software is worse than even the old manted pre-war software. I made sure to upload footage of my battle to their servers, as per League rules. Anyway, I think this sector needs some more heroes. This should put me over the point score needed to get the League Assembled Trial Raid. I'll need Wallace from the Confed Int too. They probably want to know what goes into the sector. The sector needs protected. I should have enough achievements to establish a base at this time. Any League members who want to take part in the trial will be required to put up double standard points to compete. Once a League is assembled, I will be building a base in the sector. There is plenty of heroic deeds to go around out here. Clark 351. Nothing follows. Confederate Intelligence Memo. CC. Artificial Biological Status. Digital Artificial Intelligence Infinite Worlds. Terrasol.gov. Cyborg Cooperative. Clone Directorate. Manted Free Worlds. Reynard Hive Worlds. Looks like the LARF group out of the Cyborg Cooperative is starting to patrol the Great Gulf. Someone remind them that they can't open a villain league at this time. There are the first contact species out there. Let's not give them the wrong idea about the Confederacy. We're giving the Hero League permission to establish a league base in the Great Gulf Sector and we'll be assigning our director ranked intelligence liaison. Nothing else follows. Cyborg Cooperative. Re, you're last. We'll inform the Hero League that at this time only those with a galactic rating or better are allowed into the Great Gulf, and any others will be stripped of rank and banned if they do not return within 15 standard units. Understand that this is a delicate situation regarding first contact Xenosapiens. We'll allow only admirals and above members of the Federation League larvas into the Great Gulf. At least those guys follow directives thanks to the quasi-military nature of their organization. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact Part 6 
Nuclet looked at his bridge crew and hummed in satisfaction. He had put together an excellent crew, all skilled in multiple disciplines. With education far exceeding what is currently norm and the desire to see what was beyond the borders of the outer civilized systems, they had chosen a small system with a dim red dwarf star and only two gas giants and four standard planets, only one within the habitable green zone where life could be reasonably expected to be found. The planet was dangerous, covered with seas flush with heavy metals dissolved in corrosive liquid H2O, and the small proto-continent covered in jungle where the sharp mountains didn't break at the sky. The atmosphere was full of CO2 and O2, high in nitrogen, and the ground was laced with radioactives. A dangerous planet, but one that could be exploited for wealth and prestige by those willing to commit to it. Nuclet smiled as his cousin Putmut alerted the crew that they were about to leave Junspace after nearly a standard year. Nuclet had invested wisely in recreational facilities for the Far Grasper so that the ship could make the best time through jump space and reach the system. The translation to real space made the entire crew nauseous, but excitement over the prospect of exploiting an entire system that had been untouched even by the precursor war pushed away feelings of ill will. Famit, the scan tech who had served ten standard years with the United Military Fleet, looked up from his instruments and frowned in a way that his species usually did, shrinking his bark sack and slapping his tail. Problem? Nuclear asked. Mitakak, the Akaltak communications officer, suddenly chirped upright, her wingtips going for her communications headset. Captain? Nuclet turned to the Akaltak female and raised his four eyebrows. An emergency? There's a strong signal of Omnitranslator is working on it, some kind of audio message with several components. Mitakak chirped. Keep on it, Nuklet said. He turned back to the Surian. What is the problem, Pumat? The lizard male tapped his display. There's heavy energy signals. There's debris around the primary planet and what looks like two large spaceships in orbit around that planet. Do we have a visual on them? Nuklet asked. I'm receiving multiple signals from the planet as if the communications are omnidirectional, unencrypted and unshielded. The Omnitranslator has been able to translate the most common transmissions. Mitakak broke in. Putting this on visual on the main screen, Mitakak said. On the screen, the planet was shown. Parts of a jungle were burning. There were large conical metropolises, four of which were burning. On two different windows on the main view screen were orbiting spaceships. One was massive, with an ominous architecture, kilometers long and with what looked like statues of strange beings with their hands pressed together at the chest, holding up various parts of the massive ship. The other looked as if it was cobbled together from debris taken from a hundred junkyards and a thousand debris fields. The jump calls in the twelve engines all seemingly snapped onto the hull at random areas, whilst all mistuned and leaked energy and highly up purple halos. Both ships had an entire bridge crew various symptoms of anxiety, the appearance of such menacing, and both were on opposite sides of the planet from one another, but still appeared to be maneuvering in order to bring the other into firing arcs. The signals are ready, Metakak said. She shuddered at Nuclet noticed her feathers were pressed close, her wings closed, and she squatted down slightly. I warn you, sounds like the nest war down there. Let's hear it then, Nuclet said. Draw the Emperor, purge the Zedo, stomp the Humis, crush the Squashies. 
Behind him, roar of words were sound of laser fires, shattering with kinetic weapons, the detonations of artillery and explosives. Nuclet made a chopping motion, urging Mitakak to cut off the feeds. His kind were no strangers to violence, after all. Only 200 years of nearly 3,000 of his kind had lost their lives during a fierce trade war. But the raw regression of the transmissions made him quail back in the crash crouch. I have another ship on scanners, Famit said. They rapidly approaching. They're signaling us, Metacac said. The Omni translator can't understand them. Put the new ship on screen and let's hear what the new ones are saying, Nuclet ordered. The new ship was sleek, black with a pair of engines with gold energy pulsing from them. It was rapidly approaching, flashing a small lights and red range of visual lights. The translator crackled for a new ship's communication blared out. Hey, who are you? One of the voices asked. This is a sanctioned league game. This isn't even a codex-recognized ship, another voice said. Both of you be quiet, a stern voice said. There was a throat-clearing noise. Greetings, gentle beings. I am Humanoid 83132, a registered and accredited judge of the Clone Directorate branch of the Judges Guild. May I ask your intent? We hold the exploration rights to the system. Who are you when you're jumping our claim? Nuclid said, half raising from his crouch. Hey, we leased this place five years ago for our tournament, the first voice protested. Be silent or I'll deduct the next one of you to speak 80 army points and delay the clone respawn by six hours, the judge snapped. Again, there was a throat clearing. Uh, pardon, gentle beings. The two competitors are under a great deal of tension. We were not aware of any other claim on the system. This is a sanctioned league game registered by the Terrasol Judges Guild and the Battle Hammer Entertainment Craftworks League Administration. What league? Nuclet asked. He wondered if the Omnitranslator was working correctly. There seemed to be terms that they were having problems translating. The Battle Hammer 40,000 League, Clone World's Directive Branch, the judge said. We're in the middle of a 60,000-point game. Uh, a game? Nuclear said. Space Marines versus Orcs, the judge said. It should be wrapped up in, say, um, six years or so. But we bought, Nuclear said. What about the outer planets? Pontek asked, the amphibian clicking its tongue in anxiety. Are you using the outer planets and the asteroid ring or the Oort cloud? Nuclear asked. The game has gone beyond those areas. Let me consult with the players, the judge answered. There was a long moment of silence and Mitakak pointed at the screens. I have several feeds from the planet. It is largely encrypted, but one is unencrypted if you wish to view it, she said. Put it on the screen, Nuclid ordered. The screen showed a pitch battle between forces, one massive with green skin wearing cobbled together metal plates painted in wild patterns of red and green. The other figures in power armor, thick and heavy plates, all in red, fighting alongside hordes of smaller bipedal humanoids dressed in green armor and wielding laser weapons. Both of the ones in power armor and the ones in flimsy-looking green armor had icons of some kind and fierce-looking bird on their chest. When Nuclid looked at Mitakak, the avian female just made a gesture of confusion. Nuclid noticed that the sheer, unbridled violence was making several of his crew ill, and even thought he himself was a famit was fascinated by it. Shut it off, Metakak. We've seen enough, Nuclid said. They all sat in silence for a few more moments before the judge returned to the comline. I may have a compromise that'll be acceptable to both parties, you being the party of the first, the two competitors being the party of the second. 
The judge said, If you agree to my arbitration, I will waive all fees as you are a first contact species in return for the right for a full claim on first contact on behalf of myself and the judge's guild. Nuclear thought it over. The idea of having to pay a fee to this judge was anathema, but having fees waived for something that did not know the value of was also disturbed him. Still, he wasn't sure what else he could do. I agree to waiver the fees and, and your conditions, Nuclid said, taking a risk. No risk, no profit. Both currently tournament engaged players agree to grant you planetary salvage right once the clones go offline. The judge said, additionally, they grant you salvage right on the debris field. Nuclid's eyes raised, salvage rights. Now they were talking. In return, they received the rights to continue their competition on the planet's surface and within its orbital area of the period of six more years or until the tournament competition is finished, whichever occurs first, the judge said. Six years? Nuclid asked. Yes, I am forging you a timescale according to the radioactive particle decay so that we are using the same timescales. Additionally, they grant you a license to view the game from raw data without paying a license fees, should you be so inclined, the judge put in. If you need any assistance, just let them know. Their shipboard cloning banks are running at optimum in case you need manpower. Nuclet was hardly listening. Salvage rights and free assistance. What about the cities, Nuclet asked. Once the clones expire, when the license runs out, we'll leave the cities behind instead of disintegrating them. If you want to salvage them too, the judge said. As for the military equipment used in the clone soldiers, it's all tech, but you're welcome to the materials. After all, if it's just materials, not much use of our post-scarcity confederacy. The technology is not the first contact Xenosapiens prohibited access and trade list, so there is no legal reason to prevent you from being part of the salvage deal. Nukit didn't understand the last part, but the idea of scavenging the salvaging those huge conical cities made his claws grasp greedily at the arms of his command chair. He also liked this judge. It spoke a language he could appreciate. Very well, Nuclid said. We will exploit the York Cloud. Asteroid piles and planets outside of one of your <clears throat> games is taking place. Agreed, the judge said. Nuclid rubbed his hands together. Salvage right on alien tech. I'm transmitting the legal documents now. As the Gentle Beans Agreement, the game shall continue while you review the terms and conditions of the Judges Guild's legal agreement. The judge started. I look forward to examining your terms and conditions, Nuclid replied, feeling a surge of excitement at dealing with an unknown race's legal code of agreements. Very well, I look forward to working with you. Please feel free to contact any one of me, should you need any further assistance, the judge said. Nuclet barely heard the last part, engrossed in reading the dense legalese of the contract that had just been sent to his display by Mitakak. The longer he read, the more he hummed with pleasure. Any rule and technical specific lawyer who could come up with this thick of an agreement was someone that Nuclet was happy to meet. When the crew of the Far Grasper returned with word of a game that was played by masters of cloning technology on whole planets involving short-life clones and the Unified Science Council could scarcely believe it, despite the technological breakback, crude but highly effective, most geared towards war and resource extraction, the Unified Science Council was loath to believe that this so-called clone directorate could exist much less would be so cruel as to create clones just to force them to fight in a tournament. However, 
The video logs were incontrovertible, and the fact that the crew of the Far Grasper had somehow learned the rules of this cruel and barbaric game and played it on computer-driven holographic boards and EVR all pointed to the fact that this Terran confederacy had not given up cloning over its obvious moral and ethical considerations. The Unified Council pointed out that the willingness to create clone soldiers gave the Solarians and the Terran Confederacy and the Clone Directive massive manpower advantages. Words of alarm from the executors were being listened to more and more. From Judges Guild to Clone Directorate Intelligence, CC Confederate Intelligence, encountered a ship outfitted for resource extraction and exploitation in Hartfield 221 system. Previously unencountered Xenosapien, seven Xenospecies total, most were unwilling to purchase rule sets or hollow patterns for proper tournament play. However, three species found tournament play to be fascinating, although they were currently only at a level of hollow play, not real play, have included recordings of small talk, discussion, and play of these three species, are requesting permission to attempt marketing of primary tournament games and the Judges Guild representative. Nothing follows. Confederate Intelligence, CC, Artificial Biological States, Digital Artificial Intelligence, Infonet Worlds, Terrasson, DarkGov, Cyborg, Cooperative, Clone Directorate, Mantid, Free Worlds, Trainer Ad Hive Worlds, all subjects within the long dark are that not Confederate actor intelligence service agents are ordered to withdraw from with exceptions listed in the attachment. Nothing follows. From Judges Guild, Terra HQ, to all Judges Guild stations, subject, Long Dark Tournaments. All tournaments must be cancelled, system rental fees will be refunded, games in progress will be listed as a draw, and all points and fees, not including judge or rental fees, will be refunded. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact Part 7 Many great cycles have passed without a single contact within the great emptiness. Many of the members of the United Science Council began to believe that perhaps it was some kind of lingering energies left over from the precursor war that had created mass hallucinations, or perhaps it was just isolated incidents with no meaning. Seventeen great cycles and not a single clue that supported the existence of Solarians, the Clone Directorate, sentient AIs, or any other of the strangeness discovered over the great cycle. Even the Unified Executive Council had been forced to agree that the Solarians had simply, well, vanished. The Unified High Council had no choice but to allow exploration of the great emptiness and so passed legislation to repeal the prohibition against exploration of the region of space. That is how Monarch Banalty of the Hercra found himself in charge of a crew of a dozen deep space explorer guilds and in possession of one of the most advanced ships the Unified Technology Council would permit to be built. The ship, named to rest answers from the darkness, had the best jump space engines, the most advanced computers with the most powerful computation and analyst lobes, laboratories and testing capabilities more advanced than any other ship, with sensors more sensitive than any other communications capable of hearing the slightest whisper. Initially, the ship's omni-translator had been loaded with the Terrasol lexicons learned so far. That was the entire great cycle ago, which was why Monarch, who refused the title of captain and preferred most learned, was almost sick from boredom despite his race being legendary for its patience. Even the upcoming arrival of the new solar system, deeper than anyone had gone so far into the great emptiness, failed to alleviate that boredom. 
How could it? They had thirty systems and scanned and been the same, deeper than anyone had explored, and empty except for a hundred million years of isolated evolution, largely resulting in a few plants or maybe even some non-sapient life more evolved than a cluster of cells. Monat was willing to bet the next three research grants that the next one would be the same. Preparing to drop, Asterix stated, the master of astrogen and the navigation, who had led whole fleets through jump space with a skill during his many years as part of the unified military fleet. Ostrak was capable of making the sublime jump transitions that even the most sensitive of scientists suffered little more than a light spell of dizziness. At the end of the countdown, there was a slight queasiness, as that was all, allowing Monet to tap his vestigial claws together to stare at the bullock, the sensor's technician with extreme skill. After nearly an entire cycle, Monet was beginning to wonder if Bullock had decided to not do his job out of sheer boredom. Scan, Master Bullock, Monet asked. Then a moment, please, most learned one. Bullock said. The scan tech looked over at Zedmak, the chief of maintenance. Oh, attentive one, lord and master of the mechanical, can you perform a diagnostics upon the lowly instrumentation? Monet sighed internally. Sometimes he wondered if all the insistence on titles and honorifics made it so things took longer than necessary. The heretical thought he knew, even one that he'd asked himself many times over his long life. Zedmak, who was a stickler for protocol, nodded and ruffled around his neck down his spine, flashing in pleasure. He examined his displays, tapped some commands, and then leaned back. Your instrumentation and display are all functioning at over 90% efficiency, most attentive and acquisitive scanning technician, Zedmak said. At least Bullock did not take offense to the obvious omission of the honorifics, as he had during his first long cycles of the voyage, as Zedmak was of the belief that those who joined the Unified Military Council or fleet were somehow less than those who devoted their lives to their other pursuits. Then, it appears at one long last that we have found a system with unknown Xenosapiens. Bullock stated, there are several settlements on the surface, four orbiting stations, solar collectors, and power readings everywhere. Launch a probe, Monat said. I will be waiting in my chambers. Announce to me when the probe begins to relay data. Bullock nodded and Monat stood up on all four legs and moved towards his personal chambers. Most learned one, Ecotan's voice, interrupted Monat's viewing of a lecture on how to stable reaction within a translation chamber of a jump drive was only established one way, despite crackpot claims of other possibilities. Yes, second leader, Monat sighed. He doubted that it was going to be actually be anything. There had been nearly a dozen false alarms in the first few cycles of his mission. Every time, he had turned out to be just a lost colony. You should come to the bridge immediately, Echo Tat said. Make all due haste. Monat frowned. Echo Tat was a dramarian, cold-blooded quasi-mammal whose racist physiology was almost incapable of excitement. For him to urge haste was unusual and noteworthy. When he entered the bridge, Monat noted the security officer, Lukamit, who a computer code researcher who held a position mostly ceremonial but was busy over his terminals, all three of his lab assistants working with him. What is the emergency and did something happen to the probe? Monat sighed, settling into the crash couch. We lost contact with it, most learned one, Bullock stated. It was intercepted by an energy pulse that shut it down. Soon afterwards, we were, um... I'll inform the most learned one, Zedmak snapped. He looked at Monat. 
It was then that we received a communication signal. It attempted to open up a communication channel, but all the same time attempted to penetrate our computer network. Whoever the signal is from, they are the most insistent that we be allowed access to our computer systems. Rakamet interrupted, ignoring Zedmax's splatter of his chest. We are fortunate that they are only using binary-type logic and only binary signaling. This allows me to use lobes of parallel to more efficient than they can. However, they did access the Omnitranslator's lexicon and have been attempting to translate it to their own systems. Monat thought for a moment. Allow it. But standard is to exchange lexicons, said Mac, protested. Do as I command, as most learned one, Monette told Zedmac, fixing him with a stare that used all four eyes. Zedmac backed down. Lexicon is transferred. Wait, they've stopped trying to access our system, Rukumit said. They've purged their own code and completely withdrawn. We have an incoming signal, Juketet stated, listening closely. Audio and visual, although only across a limited base 3 primary color scale. They are not permitting any reply, transmitting only. It's quite rude. Monat sighed, fully expecting to be another lost colony, probably fallen back to aggression and superstition. Instead, a figure that appeared on the screen was unlike he'd ever seen. Tall, graceful, appearing to be a biped, mammalian, with jewels adorning them, dressing in a comfortable and gossamer-appearing cloth. Long, golden hair and pointed ears. The female, and it had to be female as the mammalian milk ducks were very prominent, was surrounded by scantily clad bipeds that were shorter but had the same lithe build and pointed ears. For some reason she gave off the appearance of being superior to everyone present, as if something more than nature because nature could never produce such a perfect specimen, had crafted her to be perfection embodied. It was a strange feeling for Monat. When she spoke, it was in a strange language, linguistically designed to flow together and sound like music, even mathematically. Monat noticed that Max seemed offended by the being. The translation showed below at the bottom of the screen. Welcome to the magic realms of Meritorain. I am Queen Rado Salvav of the Graceful. You may call me Queen, Your Highness, or Radiant Divine One. Zedmak almost seemed to choke. According to Confederate law, attempting to pirate views via recording probes without a license, as well as permission from Galactic Studios Incorporated, an electronic artist's studio, is a grave violation of our legal rights. That caught Lukomit's attention. As your language is unknown to me, I'll assume that you were not meant to intrude upon this realm, and I have decided to extend Alvin hospitality to you. Marnat kept his expression from changing. Another race, bipedal, warm-blooded, mammalian, forward-facing eyes, obvious solarian. I will allow four local hours upon the surface as a freeware demonstration for one of your crew. I formally invite a sentient of your choosing into my realm and invite your ship to stay within communication range of this planet. She gave a gesture that used up the least amount of effort but still looked imperious as if she was the most important being in the entire universe, and the crew from the rest answers from the darkness should consider them blessed to have allowed the view. I will give you one of your time units to decide who you shall enter the magic realms of Meritorain. The image vanished. They've cut the transmission, Truktet said unnecessarily. Wait, they're transmitting a document. It looks like a legal document of some kind. Monat perked up. Send it to my room and have the ship computer go over it. Let's see what they're offering. Jutek nodded. Halfway through the time limit, Monat realized that even with the computer's help deciphering the document, which with some kind of terms of service, would be impossible. 
It was, quite possible, the largest legal document that he had ever seen. The ship's operating system took up less storage and used up less data than the document itself. Just viewing the document gave the issuer of the document legal rights over all kinds of things. It repeated over and over that the issuer of the document won Electronic Artist Studios and won Galactic Studios Incorporated could not be held liable for any damage to anyone using their services. This included death, dismemberment, disfigurement, damage to neural or emotional networks, physical or metaphysical discomfort, damage or alteration. It went on, and on, and on. But Monat had been tasked with exploration, and he'd be seen the Galactic Studios Incorporated and Electronic Art Studios operated under Terran Confederacy law, and were based on Terrasol, which meant, despite appearances, the Elven Queen was a Solarian. Which made no sense. How many species rose to prominence in the system? Monat needed information, but most of all, he needed a volunteer. And for that, he called Ashtrak to the ready room to see if the Surian would volunteer to be part of the free demonstration that the Queen was offering. To Monat's surprise, Ashtrak agreed immediately. Monat figured that it was out of boredom. The shuttle that gathered Ashtrak was flamboyant, lavishly decorated with rare elements to enhance its appearance and obviously built to appeal to anyone's eyes. Even mathematically, it was almost perfect. Ashtrak boarded wearing a vacuum suit and carrying a transponder. The Queen had agreed that much of the safety measure, even if she refused to allow recording devices. Monat settled down as the shuttle left and waited, for local hours was less than a dozen cycles. When Ashtrak returned, he stated one simple sentence, We must leave now. Monat respected Ashtrak's time with the United Military Fleet and ordered that the ship move at jump space immediately. Once they were safe in jump space, he called Ashtrak into his quarters and urged the reptilian navigator to speak. When I first got there, I was given many options. Enhanced virtual reality, real skin which apparently involves me actually going down to the planet, skin sheath which is allowing me to mentally control cloned versions of myself in the, from the station, or something called hitchhiker mode which is allowing me to see through someone else's eyes, Ashtrak said, rubbing his snout warily. What did you choose? Monat asked. Hitchhiker is the only option available for the free demonstration version, Ashtrak said. He shuddered. It allowed me to not only see and hear what was going on, it also allowed me to taste, smell, and feel it. Not only that, I knew I could, well, share my thoughts with the host. Monat made an annotation. Did you? Ashtrak nodded. She was from some place called Alpha Centauri, one of the earliest Terran Confederacy colonies. That's aside, however, and not important part. Looking up, Monat frowned. What is more important than that? She was, to use her words, reborn as something called a dwarf and took the profession of blacksmith, Ostruck said, working in iron, steel, and exotic metals I've never heard of. She makes armor, weapons, and other metal objects as well as wood carvings. Who does she make these weapons for? Monat asked. Soldiers who guard the town and beings who wish to enter it into the darkness to seek adventure, even at the risk of encountering dangerous wildlife that'll seek and slay them if they do not slay the wildlife first. She makes weapons and armor for these people and then, and I use her words, magics the excrement out of them, which is why, uh, magic, Monat scoffed, interrupting, a people that advance believing in magic. Ostrak nodded. 
when she explained magic to me when I was realized that we must leave at once. What was so frightening about that? Monak asked, wondering if Ostrak was to needed therapy. Nanotechnology is something we use for medical research, manufacturing, and computation, Ashtrak said. Monat nodded as Ashtrak continued. They have devised a type of nanite that uses broadcast power to sustain itself to floats through the very air. It permeates the atmosphere, is in everything they drink, everything they eat, even in the objects. Risky. What if it went out of control? Entire planets have been lost to such ill-advised experimentation, Monat asked. Ashtrak shook his head. They aren't worried about it, you see. They use the nanites to manifest certain reactions, from creating a monomolecular sword edge and infusing the blade with a nanotech like my hosted and calling up fire from thin air. This so-called magic is nanites. Monak cringed slightly. And anyone can use it with a simple interface. Ashtrak shook his head. No. It requires will, being able to chant out loud the command strings and being able to withstand pain. The more energy intensive the task the nanites carry out, the more pain the nanites inflict. Madness, Monite whispered, and they willingly subject themselves to this so-called magic. I understand if they are born there and this is the path to power, but still, to willingly subject one to self to pain. Orstrock shook his head. No, most learned one, it is worse than that. How is it worse? Monat asked. He's Ashtrak. Will you define worse? While some beings who live on that planet were born there, most learned one, Ashtrak took a deep breath. The majority pay for the privilege of living their lives there. Some even pay to other species, such as my host, who had her entire body rebuilt from pure strain human to dwarf in order to live out her fantasies. Ashtrak fixed Monite with his gaze. It's a planet-sized, fully interactive nanite-assisted amusement park, and they pay for the experience, sometimes for their entire adult lifespan. Monat goggled at Allstruck, and thought of having one's body changed to live out of fantasy was grotesque, but the idea that it's some kind of amusement park horrified him. You were correct in having us leave at once. Was there anything else that made you so urgently leave? Monat asked. Allstruck nodded. At the end of my time of my free trial, several of the High Elves offered to sponsor me if I agreed to fight in their name or glory, he said, shuddering. Monat nodded. A wise idea. Returning. I do not blame you for wanting to return when that has undoubtedly caused such fear. To be dumped in such a place where advanced technology is used to live out the fantasies of primitivism. Shivering, Allstruck shook his head. No, most learned one. I did not want to return out of fear. I returned because I wanted to stay. Allstruck hung his head and whispered softly, Glory to the honor of my house, with my eggs and burrows the envy of all, by might or trickery, my house, my burrow, my clutch ascendant. And not stared in horror as Allstruck repeated such an ancient mantra of his species and decided that the expedition was over. The Unified Exploration Council examined the records as well as the statement of Fleet Admiral retired Ashtrak Ethersasol and ordered another exploration expedition created. The Unified Science Council determined that the Solarians, perhaps the entire Terran Confederacy, was using technologies in ways that they prohibited as well as dangerous, not only to the Terran Confederacy itself, but to all those around it. The Unified Executive Council decided that armed executors would accompany all of the research and exploration vessels to prevent any desertions to such dangerous civilizations. Allstruck Thessasol converted all of his possessions and wealth into simple gold bars. 
and vanished. I, awestruck at that asshole, agreed to abide by above terms of service and set up by the Galactic Studios Incorporated and Electronic Artistic Studios, as well as the Meritarian Code of Conduct. Two Confederate intelligence from Queen Radlestvov of Graceful, overseer of Meritarian, all rights reserve. Had visitors not long ago, like I told. However, it appears that one of them, number, liked the trial time so much that they returned to my divine embrace. Lifetime membership purchased. Attached is accrued documents and illusions of their statements about the mundane and boring life that they left behind. The poor dear, I'm sending these to you out of consideration. He's a lovely subject, item shop purchase platinum starter pack, who has been yearning all his life for an advanced DLC purchased only I and my infinite wisdom and beauty can provide him. Item shop purchase, user-generated friends and family platinum pack. I have hereby granted him asylum in such a dull and dreary place and made him a citizen DLC mega pack purchased of the Mediterranean expansion purchased with permission to found his own house DLC purchased as well for his quest for his true love DLC purchased as well as to create offspring expansion purchased. I have high hopes for my new subject item shop purchase cabald hero pack and now that he will go far item shop purchase dragon blooded in my realm enjoy your files loves and kisses her eternal alvin grace divine light of the aether lady of magic and power in medicine nothing follows confederate intelligence memo cc artificial biological states digital artificial intelligence info worlds terrasol.gov cyborg cooperative clone directed mantid pre worlds trainer hive worlds Xenosapien government identified, native species identified, see attachment. Military potential is initially classified as low to be revisited upon any new information which will be shared to all Confederacy governments as per treaties. Chance for incursion into Confederate space is high. Place all remote stations, colonies, planetary governments and military forces on stage to alert. Do not fire unless unable to withdraw or casualties are incurred. Abide by the rules of engagement for inferior forces unaware of Confederacy military and industrial power. Nothing follows. Treyanad Hive Intelligence, re your last. Let's hope we do better with them than we two of us did when we first met. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First contact, interlude, terms and conditions. Eagleet finished working at his menial job at the factory, a job too low for the corporation to purchase and maintain a robot to perform, and made his way home. Mass transit was crowded that day, with everyone looking down at their datapads, working or not, or seemingly involved in conversations on earbuds. Eagleet pretended to be the latter, wearing a non-functioning eyepiece that wouldn't perturb him if it was stolen by pretending to be in conversation with someone, just mumbling to oneself. No other being would bother him, panhandling or raving or just lonely. Iglit learned the basic fact that everyone learned on Galmavzran. Life was lonely. Still, Iglit felt a surge of anticipation as he entered the small dwelling. It had a basic food dispenser, a basic waste disposal and a single room. The only two things inside were a comfortable nest, at least by as comfortable as someone of his economic status could afford, 
and an EVR rig that he had recently upgraded to the best that he could afford. Even better, he had entered into a contest recently and won, which meant that his EVR rig was capable of more than he'd ever imagined. Today was the day. Iglit had been looking forward for it for the most of a third of a great cycle, since the message boards and virtual meeting places had begun talking about it. A new game. It took an effort to find information about it. It took effort to even get any previews of it. Iglit now heard it referred to as an alternate reality game, where there were hints of hidden all over, and some even in real life. At one point, he had found a broken food dispenser with a shiny keypad. He had followed the instructions and punched in his comm code. That night, he had received a Galnet address, a one-time-use Galnet address. Navigating to it with the text-only communications program had earned him another address, this one deep in an old abandoned sectors of Galnet, where virtual reality games had been tried and failed over the eons. There, a rusted and battered robot had given him an orb. An orb contained a file, heavily encrypted, that claimed to be a prize and it was inscribed with a real mail postal address to a location that the curious had discovered was an old abandoned scientific research station on the edge of the Outer Rim Civilized Races territory. He mailed the address and said, I want to believe on actual physical paper. In return, he'd won a new EVR rig, but had to promise to keep it a secret. After all, supposedly agents of the Geowiz Corporation security were looking for any outlaws who possessed the rig. It was exciting to play the game. Iglit, like many others across the unified civilizations, had furrowed out the clues, deciphered the riddles, and decrypted the files. And bit by bit, something literally had discovered more and more about the mysterious game. Each drop of information had intrigued those searching out of the data even more. Set on a world before a star drive, containing only single pieces, set in a world much like their own where corporations ruled everything, and government was just a place for the corrupt and incompetent to earn as easy paycheck off the backs of everyone who paid government's extortion. The game promised to be real-time, to link as many players logged in with a full EVR support. The only downside was it's a single-race game, but what a race. Able to accept cybernetics without pain and suffering and mental anguish. Able to accept unhanced biological parts without rejection. Able to commit violence and give back some of the misery beings like Eaglet felt every day. Everyone knew someone, a tenth of a great cycle, who had been allowed to play the alpha and then the beta test, who had gotten experience the world. There were bugs, problems in the alpha, but by the beta they had been ironed out. Except one... That bug had become a feature. The chance of crippling, agonizing pain if you were killed that lasted for cycles and couldn't be disconnected from. It even worked player versus player and Iglit, like some others who would never admitted it, felt a thrill at the idea of inflicting such an agony on another being. It had been an entire third of a great cycle. But today, today was different. The flashing light of download was complete, even the day one patch had finished. Even the Iglit slow Galnet connection, that was the same as everyone had the right to via the civilized race's rights and entitlement compact. Iglit ate sparingly, preferring to wait to eat his tasteless paste till he was in the game. He had found the Cell's dinner area during these searches, and found that purchasing a meal there and then eating his own sustenance gruel made it so that he tasted what he had ordered. 
Only a hundred or so ARG players knew about Sol's Diner, and yesterday the owner, one of the stocky bipedal primate race, gave him a key that would allow him to find the diner and let him enter into it the game. A reward. Igdeet shivered with anticipation when the EVR synced up with his body. It was a non-invasive model, a dermal contact rig. But amazingly, it worked. He leaned back and closed his eyes, consciously surrounding his two motor control cortexes to the EVR rig. Welcome to Cyberlife. You are number 23121351, out of 23121357, appeared in front of him. But his participation in the ARG had given him something better. He reached out and tapped the little bouncy whiskered cartoon creature called Dog twice, scratched its belly, and then said its name. Good boy. The scene in front of him, a fairly boring galnet holding weight screen, vanished, and he felt like he was being sucked through the tubes and looked like it was made of neon and electricity. It stung slightly, which thrilled him because he knew that it wasn't a lie. Pain was part of the risk and it dumped him in the darkness with a single window. Welcome, I am a Gleet male. You are 15 out of 16. The number dropped to zero as he felt a surge of disorientation. It stung again, but once again, it thrilled more than it bothered him. He found himself on a street. It used black pavement, an archaic form of roadway that the ARG players actually had to look up in ancient data archives. He was sitting against a wall made of red brick, dressed in black clothing. His stomach hurt and his hand held a projectile weapon. Blood was around him and on his stomach. Come on, we gotta get moving, another avatar said, reaching down. Can you walk? Degleet nodded. To continue, you must accept the terms and conditions. Would you care to read them or do you just accept them? The pain vanished and Degleet felt weirdly disconnected from the game. He didn't like that, and being in a hurry, he just clicked, I accept, and was gratified when the pain returned and the other avatar heaved him up. Don't talk, we'll get you to the dock, we'll get you a new face, and then we'll get you out of corpse-sex sites. In his apartment, in the real world, Iglit sat in the darkness for hours. He was in no hurry to disconnect. He did not have another labor shift for five days, the minimum amount of hours he could receive as a voluntarily employed citizen. In the EVR world, he had named himself Kalshina, after a girl that he'd liked in a cultural education. He was a neuromancer, a wizard, or a crude but amazing version of Galnet, good with a gun and a cyberpunk with a fiber optic hair that changed colors, swirling electric tattoos and facial piecings. By morning, he was part of a gang of fellow ARG players. The orb that he had found with the encrypted program when the program was loaded was a coupon to let him choose a pistol and a submachine gun to start with. Sal's Diner turned out to be a place that they could sell ill-gotten ware and purchase illegal tech and weaponry, even cybernetics. Gleet got cybernetic eyes and induction cyberjack that he could never afford in the real world and cybernetic wiring that made him better with his smart gun. Others didn't dare. Their very thought repulsed them. Eaglet, Kalchina, Crash Rider sneered at them. Anarchy was life. That running was life. Resistance was life. Eaglet was hooked, and he didn't care. He was an outlaw, but he had his chummers, which was more than he had in what they all sneeredly referred to as uh, meat space. Unified Intelligence Council memo. 
The game's cyberlife encourages antisocial behavior in its player base and its unrealistic depictions of violence and crime. An attempt at suppressing it has caused no less than 90 different law firms on over 50 different planets to engage in defending the game under archaic freedom of artistic expression laws. Only the user interface and supporting software are stored on the player's local machine. Unlike standard massive multiplayer worlds, it appears their system transmits user input to servers which are currently protected by mountains of slavering angry lawyers with credit signs in their eyes. Even login names and property of the Galnet Artistry Incorporated and is the avatar appearance, making it difficult to get warrants to electronically spy on any players. Galnet Artistry Incorporated is less than three great cycles old. Funding was apparently done through anonymous donation site Fund My Dreams to the tune of literal billions of dollars. Programming was done via public listserv code sites and were passed encryptions. Code acquired was variations of older code. Nothing special, just applied in a strange way. Unified Science Council suggested that the game was built up by largely inexperienced coders using publicly available freeware code and volunteer coders, which is the reason for the unstable algorithm rather than any malevolent or secretive reason the game's streaming code is unable to be broken. Further examination is needed. End message. Confederate Intelligence Bulletin, Subject Cyberlife, CC, Artificial Biological States, Digital Artificial Intelligence, Infinite Worlds, Terrasol.gov, Cyborg Collective, Clone Directorate, Manted Free Worlds, Trianet Hive Worlds, Electronic Artist Studios Incorporated, Galactic Studios Incorporated, Von Neumann Artificial Intelligence Creations. Penetration of cyberlife exceeds estimates. Evolution of number of beings with free time to reach level 3 or higher within the alternate reality game suggests automated economy with low chance of employment or advancement. Average player online time is 3 to 7 local work cycles. Average player engagement is 80%. 10% of the players make power and ability purchases in online store. Those often have the least engagement in time and effort in the game. Draw int estimates that their use are wealthy and have added visual effects when player makes a power or ability purchase in store to warn other players. This has resulted in chump hunting as predicted. Nearly 95% of players online two or more local work cycles prefer to sleep in-game and use the game's dream generator rather than go offline. Estimate 0.1% realize most NPCs are artificial or virtual intelligences. Online store was hacked by in-game players using an in-game technology and infrastructure at 70% of estimated time, suggesting a desperate desire for luxuries even if they only exist in EVR. In-game item shop purchases are primarily cosmetic decorations, power-ups and gear enhancements reduced customer engagement and resulted in less customers online. This had been rectified by the streetwear war story arc causing the power-up and gear enhancements available in the online store being looked at as dangerous drugs and enhancements that mark out wealthy players who are often set upon by gangs and eliminated. 80% of the players spend 30% of their time socializing in public areas or at private living spaces with other, suggesting a high loneliness index concurrent with low social health infrastructure. Game is operating at 25% budget loss and is estimated to break even next quarter. Pain as a stimulus has driven off casual players as well as the wealthy and privileged. Conversations between players continue to be log. 
providing valuable insights to the lives of players and their place in the culture and society. Cloneint is requesting to add additional players as well as engage in conversations. Bassint has reported Good Boy Gang members are amongst the most popular companions. This suggests low emotional connection between players and other members of their culture and society. Traint reports high level of success playing the ghosts in the net and rogue AIs. Dasint has suggested that a free work cycle period in order to encourage more players. This has been approved by Conint. Next bulletin in 18 hours. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First contact, part 8. It always happens. Things go well. Beings think that they are on the top and it will never change. The status quo is how the universe was always meant to be and so it'll always be that way. That the apex species will always be apex. And then it happens. The strongest military always believe that they will always be the strongest. The fastest ship will always be the fastest and the most powerful weapon will always remain the most powerful. And still... It happens. The smartest and wisest believe that they've learned and discovered all there is to discover, and so they are the authority on everything. And then it happens. It's a law of the universe. It always happens. Most species never get to understand this law before the law destroys them. It was a law humans had learned early. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong, and it can always be worse. Humans knew this. They taught it to one another before they even built their first cities. They taught it to the Manted Hive Queens. They taught it to my people, the Trayanad. They taught it to one another again and again. Nobody had taught it to the Unified Civilization Council in centuries, perhaps eons. And so it happened. Not that the Unified Councils understood when it started to happen. No. They didn't understand it, but they knew who they wanted to blame, which meant it happened. And it got worse. Gather close this document, which bears silent witness to not only what happened, but why. The Niklik Liklikik O'Malley, Trianad Historian, 3241HPD, Human Post Dispora. Daxon was born for a scarcity that had been defeated. His brain was perfectly healthy, yet he did not operate in the same as the others. That had been unacceptable, and his brain was altered so that his thoughts were acceptable. He earned a meager wage doing a job that Robot could do without being more expensive than paying Daxon to do the work. This altered his thoughts back to the way that he had been, only he was now older and wiser. When war came, Daxon signed up voluntarily, unlike the majority of his people. They died when the planet was glassed. Daxon did not. Daxon was busy killing, not because he enjoyed it, but because it did not bother him. And he was good at it, better than the machines. Afterwards, Daxon returned to society, and society told him that he did not think right. That was fine. Daxon did not care. He just wanted to be left alone. But more wars took place. For Daxon, the problem with war wasn't the killing, it's that he wasn't left alone. If he joined, he had to be part of a society. If he did not join, then someone else would bother him with business end of a plasma rifle, and he just wanted to be left alone. During one of the wars, Daxon volunteered to undergo a process to turn him into a complete full conversion cyborg. That cut away everything but his brain, his eyes, and his lower jaw. 
and his place. It was then that he met Fido. After the war, he just wanted to be left alone. Clinically immortal, he found himself drifting further and further from the rest of humanity. Not that he hated them, not that he looked down on them, not that he disliked them. He just wanted to be left alone. He couldn't remember when he had left face behind during the upgrade. A call of exploration had consumed him after the train at war. Fido liked exploring what was called the Long Dark with Daxon. Fido felt bad for his part in the regal Syrian war. Fido killed a being with Daxon, and Daxon made him feel like a good boy, not a war boy. For the most part, Daxon avoided all but the AI-run stations. He would report interesting things to the Federation, then the Combine, then the Republic, and now the Confederacy. His body, the best he could afford, had been built in the great nanoforges of Mercury's soul. He was at home in the vacuum or the hard chest environment. He made sure Fido was as strong and as fast and as tough as he was. Because Daxon liked Fido. Fido liked Daxon. Daxon was disappointed that beyond the long dark there were more people. Well, Daxon figured they would be people because he wanted to be left alone and people never did leave him alone. So he turned back into the long dark and began drifting from system to system looking for anything interesting. Daxon enjoyed watching the flower open for the first time in a nanoprobe. He got a thrill down his chassis when watching the sun rise and small animals wake up on the optical scanners. It made the few inches of remaining of his spinal cord tingle to see the small cubs and chicks blink into the light. He just wanted to be left alone. He would view others, but he would leave them alone also which made the fact that the ship had dropped into the system was currently inhabiting, orbiting a gas giant and extracting its resources he needed. Just his luck. The ship was screaming for help across multiple spectrums using a multiple languages, all of them from the lexicons that he had taken from his due from the ship they had rendered assistance to in the past. Daxon reached out with some scanners since he was plugged in putty into the ship, making him the ship. He touched the other craft. The hull was damaged in several places, kinetic weaponry and what looked like a brush from a high-intensity energy weapon. It was in bleeding atmosphere, which meant the crew had either gotten it under control or they'd given up trying to maintain an atmosphere. The new ship was armed, light damage capacity, older weapons that wouldn't have qualified as military-grade weapons when Daxon had first joined the military. Even the strongest weapon the ship possessed wouldn't register on Jackson's debris shields where weapons showed signs of having been utilized recently. Before the ship had entered the jump space, only to tumble into the barren system that Daxon was currently occupying. But the ship was screwed by living. But they were not his people, and he was not bound to help unclassified Xenosapiens engage in combat. But they were screaming for help. For long ticks the ship's atomic clock, Daxon considered if he cared enough to help them. On one hand, they needed help. He was bound to help others. On the other hand, he wanted to be left alone. Then alarms went off again and Daxon fluttered the debris field in vision of surprise. Hell jump detected. Hell jump detected. Bad boy Daxon. Bad boy. Old boy. Death boy Daxon. Fido had detected the energy surge from the same time as Daxon smelled it, so to speak, and identified it with Daxon busy dropping his ship into the atmosphere of the gas giant to hide while he decided what he was going to do. He just wanted to be left alone, but the one screaming for help was not the belligerent, it was not the aggressor, and what was chasing them was the enemy of everyone. 
Daxon knew that it wouldn't leave him alone. Daxon felt something that he had not felt in centuries, a thing that he thought he'd left behind with his flesh when he had traded it for metal. A taste of iron and copper on missing tongue, hammering and pulse in your temples long gone. The thudding of a heart left behind. The taste of hatred. The taste of wrath. New boy scared, new boy hurt by a bad boy. Help, Daxon, help. Daxon felt himself come alive in a way that he had missed to avoid. The parts of his brain that would say said were wrong. The part that they had tried to fix. The part that they had tried to convince him to let them cut away. Woke up and stared at its scan of the newcomer. Daxon just wanted to be left alone. But the newcomer would never leave him alone, would never leave anyone that he'd encountered alone, until it was alone. Daxon reached out and tickled Fido's petting nerve, both are calm, Fido, and center himself. Help, Daxon, help! We will, Fido. Daxon left his companion know with a few data pulses. Wake up the boys! Fun boys, wake up! Fun boys, wake up! Daxon felt a virtual intelligence slumbering within the ship's computer systems wake up as Fido fed them data pulses, fed whirling particles to them. The fun boys, all dedicated to virtual intelligence, designed from the ground up by the digital, artificial, sentient system best six growers, woke up and eagerly awaited for Daxon to provide the data they needed. We help new boys? Yes. Daxon knew what he was facing. He and Fido load the disaster frame, loading himself into his disaster frame, dropping a message torpedo deep into the gas giant with orders for it not to launch for the nearest Terran Confederacy message beacon until after the newcomer was destroyed or left the system. Help, Daxon, help! Yes. Daxon fired up his engines and brought up all his shields, not just the debris shield. The VI did checks on his weapons as it slipped into the weapon system, scampered into the shielding ensuring the optimally deployed. He slithered into the ship's systems to ensure everything ran at 100% capacity. May I be of assistance, Dax sent to the damaged and screaming ship, and armed with his C-plus cannons. End of chapter. First Contact Part 9 Negatai was the captain of Booble Bust, a well-outfitted colony and resource exploration ship that represented her species' first permitted colony in over two centuries. The fact that the colony choices were either barren or lightly surveyed didn't bother her. Nor did it bother her that the best bet was a superficially surveyed system in the dead zone. The precursor war had been over for a hundred million years prior, which meant that the planets had possessed plenty of time to recover from that war. The fact that it had been surveyed nearly 500 years before was no matter. That was just longer for the ecosystem to recover. For the new jump space lane, the trip which could have taken nearly 50 years prior, it only took six months. Nectatai had planned carefully for recreation facilities and animal exercise areas on the ship to ensure that all of her crew, the colonists, and the animals would all be healthy as possible when they arrived. Arrival was celebrated throughout the ship as the ship dropped from jump space into real space and the bounty that they had received was revealed to them. The system was more than promised. Twenty-two planets, six of them gas giants, two gas planets and three habitable planets inside the green zone for Nectetai species. Five asteroid belts, two of them within the green zone which made them ripe for resource extraction. 
There were four dwarf planets, one of the moons around the gas giant that could be a good mineral and gas extraction and refinery base. The star was young in its energetic phase and had strong stellar winds. The colonists were dropped on the best planet, the second one into the green zone, between the two asteroid belts, and began the hard work of supervising the automatons that quickly became the building of the colony. Nectatai watched the boom or bust separate into different parts, one might become a wayfair station, one to become a refinery, and one to become a shipping station. Six shuttles and a smaller sleeker, it tastes sweet, which Nectatai would use to seed the system with buoys, arrays, and do more in-depth surveys of the outer planets with probes. For the first three years, everything went smoothly. Movies in place, real space, and jump space proclaimed that the system was owned by the leader Mac Consortium. The arrays slowly unfolded and began to gather and transmit data, and the probe showed that the area was rich in resources. There was even a precursor ruins on some of the airless moons and planets, which had the colony scientists rejoicing. Even if no new information could be gleaned from the ruins, old answers to old questions merely proved the old answers were right all along and proved the superiority of old answers over new questions. But any human could have told her, if it's going too smoothly, it's gonna hurt when it's jammed in all the rest of the way. Nectatai had enjoyed her part of establishing the colony. It made her whiskers twitch with pride that her name had been used for the trading capital of the colony. She enjoyed the challenge and the hard work of supervising her crew of automated probes as they surveyed and examined the system. In the coming days, the biggest questions that would be asked were the unified civilized races, berries, councils were, why? The human could have told them, because it could, because it wanted to, because you were there. The first hint anyone had was an anomalous energy readings between the systems, which had been labeled Rich New Worlds, usually called Rich System 32, and a neighbor merely 14 light years away. It wasn't real space scanners or arrays that picked up the readings. It was the navigation buoy tethered to jump space. According to the buoy, the reading was only two minutes of energy, starting from the light pulse and growing to something massive before dissipating. The colonists assumed that the buoy had been somehow damaged when the diagnostic reported the buoy, built and designed to hold position in jump space, had somehow gotten jump scorched. They had barely had time to discuss the data when the Colony Scientific Council, when the source of the energy reading made its presence known. By tearing open a tear in space-time that leaked the energy of jump space as well as other unknown energies for it to enter the system. Nectatai saw the scanning tech tear his earpiece away from the scanner and reported energy signatures of the tear as a scream that left blood dribbling from his ear. That scream that heralded the arrival of the newcomer was echoed as the ship swept down upon the colony. Nectatai ordered the sweet in system when the colonists began screaming for sweet to save them. She knew it would take two days to reach the colony. The scanner could detect energy signatures like an artificial star, but no ship. The colony's voices were silenced within two hours. It took over a day before Nectatai saw the ships on visual scanners a day before visual light scanners were able to see the ship. It made Nectatai glad the visual images were over and the law of light speed delaying the visual for a full day. Captain Nectatai, it's on visual, Vacan said, putting it up on the screen. The entire bridge crew stared at the screen. 
The planet, warmly blue and green, was nothing but a grey clouds. Orbiting the planet was a ship the size of a subcontinent. It was irregular, no smooth lines, like a jagged-edged flattened egg. It was black and brown and detailed fuzzies by the light degradation. As Nectatai watched, light speared through the massive ship into the atmosphere, causing the clouds and the flea and the atmosphere to bloom up towards the ship. A few began crying as the ship fired again and again at the planet. Energy contact 80,000 kilometers and closing, Vakan cried out. Correction, many, many contacts approaching rapidly. Debris shields at maximum power, Nectatai barked. Action stations helm, evasive action, scan. What? What are they? Slamming shut her visor, Nectatai thought fast. It was a kinetic weapons. The debris shields would brush it to the side easily. If it was missiles, they would explode to point defense systems would pick off nearly a kilometer from a ship, long before the fission weapons would do any damage. Lectat ordered the computer to go into evasive action, and the ship began looping through a randomized pattern the computer came up with. McCann queried the computer, ordering it to figure out what was incoming objects were based on the flight profile, makeup, shape, and drive status, if any, and any other profile that it could use. Computer doesn't know. Undiscovered objects, Vakan said. Incoming is compensating for switching to manual, Nectat yelled out, snapping a button and grabbing the joystick as soon as they popped up. Nectatai almost vomited as Lectat spun the ship and tried to vector away radically. The ship's superstructure groaned. Second wave detected, 80,000 and closing. Vakan suddenly yelled, first wave is at 20. The world went mad. Missiles detonated at 20 kilometers, graviton compression on a fusion blast that turned the revening energy into a dozen spears of charged lightning bolts that raked the ship. Engine 2 is destroyed, engine 5 is not responding, internal gravity is offline, rear debris shield is offline, reactor 2 is offline, deck 16 to 30 are open to space. Chakuva called out, his voice tight with the stress that he had to do his job for the first time in his life. Damage control crews to stations. Repeat. Here they, Vagan screamed. Lectat spun the ship on all three axes, seemingly trying to accelerate in three directions at once and retrobake in two. He reached out and slapped another button. Jump space, jump space, jump. The world heaved again as the missiles exploded 20 kilometers off the ship. The majority of them missed, thrown off by Lectat's desperate manual actions. Two hit. One speared through the damage control center, killing the six crew members, and the other ripped across the front of the bridge. The atmosphere wasn't pulled out. It was compressed, ignited, and filled the bridge with plasma. Three quarters of the bridge crew died instantly due to their face shields not being closed. They hadn't worn their armor or even their vacuum suits of those they were close to a corona of the energy beam. Red. Now the core of the beam is red, Nectati thought. The sweet vanished into jump space. Nectatai started to tear through the primary, secondary, and safety bulkheads to tear going through the maintenance spaces, the forward shield emitter, and the reactionist thrusters, exposing the surviving bridge crew to jump space for a split second before the emergency jump shields managed to spin up. Nectatai watched in horror as most of the survivors evaporated away. Their molecules ripped apart and scattered across the light years of jump space leaving her, Lektak, Chakuva, and Vakan alone on the bridge when the ship dropped into real space. Nectatai didn't remember throwing up inside her helmet, but she must have. 
She could smell the sharp tang of ozone and the scorched biological material from the self-contained visor doing its work. She could hear Chukuba gasping, his vac suit flashing red from his shoulders to signify a major injury. He was using his two right arms to hold his two left arms where they'd been ripped away by the jump space exposure. Medical to bridge, emergency, Nectatai coughed. Chukuva shook his head. Medical's gone, he gasped. The beam speared straight through the ship's armored and shielded core. Making calls for the resonance zone boundary, jump drive recharging. Captain, but it's slow. I think it's damaged, Nectat snapped. Full real space speed. Getting inside the resonance zone meant that nobody could drop from jump space into real space near them. It was usually to avoid pirates. Not that thing. Nectatai felt the ship groan and shudder around her as she got up, moving to the wall to grab the medical packs. She had always thought it was wasteful to put one on the wall of the bridge. After all, anything that hit the bridge would kill everything on it. Maybe it would have been a bit better. Don't knock me out, Chukuba said, shuddering. His suit was treating him for shock, pumping him for the chemicals to keep him conscious. The Unified Ethics Council had long stated that the ships having vac suits and armor that kept someone awake while injured was a crime, but now Nectatai was grateful for if she could use the computer to treat the injuries without knocking him out. We're across the border, jump space drivers almost charged, Nectat said. Brought a course back to... Nectati started to order. She was looking right at, right at a dark space where it had happened less than 10,000 kilometers away. She was staring straight through the tear in the bulkhead into the darkness when it happened. It was like a talon tearing open real space, a tear formed red and purple fire pouring from the rip in purple with neon green and red energy. Inside the rip, Nectatai could see swirling flames of energy and, for a moment, she could swear that she saw shadow-like limbs reaching bleedingly towards her ship. Flames can't exist in a vacuum. Her shocked brain tried to reassure her, tried to tell her that it wasn't happening. The rip split wider and the black edges of the massive ship pushed through it. Two Nectatai's eyes space bulged around the rip, like a flesh pushed aside by some monstrous blade. As watched the ship forced its way through the rip, forcing it wider and wider as the ship pushed its way through. When it fully emerged, the tear rippled for a heartbeat before closing with the sound of a heavy metal door with rusted hinges shutting. But sound can't transfer in space, Nectatai's mind argued. Right before the ship screamed, a terrifying high-pitched screech of a predator who had found its prey. On all screens, for a second, was it displayed a simple message. There is only enough for one of us. And everything went dark as the ship's computers died. End of chapter. Post Contact Chapter 10 The lights flickered red across the shattered bridge as the emergency systems came online, revealing that the forward half of the bridge was carbonized wreckage, seared, and when the bridge atmosphere had been turned into plasma cloud, there were seats holding parts of the crew that had been left when the short trip through gem space had torn them apart at a molecular level. The ship tumbled, bleeding air and energy and debris. Two vac suits, thankfully only worn by corpses, spun into the void. Ship computer cores are out, completely fused, rotating backwards from cold storage. Jakuva pinted, the meds in his system keeping him from going into shock despite having two of his arms ripped away in the haze of freed molecules being spread across the light years. 
Right before they fused out, they reported something was physically touching them, even though that's physically impossible. It spoke, Lectat moaned, taking her hands off her ears. That ship, it spoke. He'd had blood on his palms from where he could cover his ears. Nectati looked at the helmsman. What did it say? She asked, remembering what she'd seen on the screen. It told me to run. Run home, Lectat said. He glanced at his computer as it came up. Jump drive is charged. The screens came up and Chakuva gagged as the ship was suddenly swung away from Behemoth and accelerated. Secondary cores are fused. Only one deep storage core remains. Liquid coolant is operating at a 30% efficiency. There's some kind of resonance in the gel. Chakuva gasped. I've never seen software, firmware, or hardware damage like this before. The ship suddenly went dark again as the sole remaining globe died. Before it went, it screamed across the speaker, Only one! and imploded. All systems on local control, Chikuva coughed. Get us out into jump space. The unidentified ship is closing, Fakan said, raising his head up and coughing. Most of my scanners are either destroyed or the software has crashed, but the readings I am getting don't make sense. I'm having to rely off the optical measurements and estimates. What do you mean, Nectati asked, feeling a rush of joy that her scan tech was still alive. Putting it on on your display, Fakan said. Nectati looked at the screen and jerked back. According to the scanners, what was coming straight at them was burning skull of her own species. Jaws stretched in a silent scream of agony, flaming puffs of jaws. Written over there was a, There is only enough for one of us, across the screen, in twisted and writing script. Lock down the ship, total MCOM, rig for silent running. Nectati found herself giving the order and learned in the captain's school, but never thought that she would ever need. Nobody but pirates and pirate hunters had used it in centuries. Rigging for silent running, Chikuba said, taking over the communication station from the damage control panel. He looked back. To be honest, Captain, there isn't many systems that are still up. Any worse than we're going to have to go to the jump core and tell it directly what we want. He gave a weak laugh. Unknown ship is still gaining, Fagan said. That's impossible. It's too big to get that kind of acceleration, Chikuba said, shaking his head. It's too big to even move with any known drives. It's the size of a moon. Get out and tell it that, Lectat said. He reached across the display and typed an order, bringing close-range passive scans onto his screen. His eyes widened as he suddenly yanked his joystick, spinning the ship again on all three axes. Nectati was positive that Lectat was trying to create a fourth axis for the ship to move on. Many incoming, Lectat cried out. Jump space jam! Nectati expected him to hit the emergency jump space button again. It would discharge the entire jump space core. It was risky, but it would throw the ship into jump space for a few moments and drop the ship at a closer star. It also damaged the jump drives and jump core. The ship moved again into jump space, and Nectati would be asked to describe the sensation of being exposed to jump space, explain the eye-watering flow of color, the sense of mass moving past you, and the feeling that time was stretched out. All she could do was stare at it, watching vapors slowly spill from outside of the ship, through the damaged bulkheads, and into the bridge. We can't stay here long, Nectati said. Turn us towards home. No, Lektak shouted. Nectati looked at him with a shock in his head. No, we can't need it back. We need it back. It'll do to whatever world we bring it to what it did to our home. Nectati felt like she'd crumpled up inside herself. You will be consumed here.
Everyone on the bridge screamed as the shrieking voice made itself heard, vibrating in the bones of their skulls. When the voice ended, Vakan looked up, the fur around his eyes suddenly white with stress. It's behind us, he whispered. That's impossible. He can't follow another ship in, Nectati said. Her display flickered to life, writhing and twisting code appearing around the edges of the window that displayed the rear hatch optical sensor. The massive ship was approaching in jump space. And gaining. In her defense, Nectati's people were herbivores who couldn't pass up the odd tasty insect or smaller creatures now and then. She was not used to being prey. She wasn't used to feeding doom rumbling behind her, whispering, twisting promises of death and suffering into her brain, onto her displays, into her soul. There is only enough for one. Nectati shrieked and hit the emergency jump icon. Well, still in jump space. Two, the surviving crew members felt like they were being turned inside out. Others felt like they were being stretched across infinity. Still others felt as if they were sucked into themselves until they were a little more the size of a proton. For the third of the crew, how they felt is what happened. The ship dropped out of jump space and Nectati felt the ship shudder. Saw icons on a screen of jump drives fading and jump core venting onto the ship. There was nobody there alive anyway. Any ships? Anyone? Help us, began said over the comms. Where? Nectati coughed. Where are we? Estrogen and navigation is down, no telling, Bacan coughed, hanging from a branch by a broken thumb, Jakuva said weakly. For a long moment, the only sound of Nectati's ears was the sound of Vakan's begging someone, anyone, for help, and Jakuva coughing. Jump drivers charging, Lekat said, slowly, but the core is damaged and discharged into space. Casualties, Nectati asked, dreading the answer. Jakuva shook his head. Everyone in the surrounding three decks were already dead. Nectati opened her mouth to reply when the scream sounded out again and the monitors all displayed, There is only enough for one. Over and over and over. Lectat pulled the ship around trying to coax every iota of speed that he could from the damaged and battered ship, driving towards the nearest celestial body, a gas giant that was yellow streaked with red. Unknown vessel at 0.2 million kilometers and closing, Vakan said, his voice sounding weary and defeated. It jumped in inside the boundary again. Nectati thumbed the icon in shipwide broadcast. Prepare yourselves, she said, tears rolling from her eyes. We are about to join our ancestors, our shipmates, and our families that were on the colony. She leaned back. It has been a pleasure, she said. We're receiving a transmission, multiple wavelengths, multiple bands, Vakan said, suddenly sitting up. What is it? Nectati asked, privately wanting to tell Vakan to order whoever was to flee. May I be of assistance? The voice, a calm and assured, asked her in a unified civilian standard. And the other part of the message was in text. Good boy will help new boy. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.